The trouble with fantasy podcasts? Nobody's talking about the trade deadline. I'll fix that talking with Jeff Zimmerman from Fangraphs and Rotographs and Baseball HQ. He's coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 3rd. It's show number 29 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll call it our Trade Deadline Edition. We'll have our feature interview with Jeff Zimmerman from Fangraphs and Rotographs, and sometimes from Baseball HQ, discussing all the Trade Deadline fantasy fallout, as well as stats-based pitcher prospect rankings, how to play hard down the stretch, his boons and banes, and much more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols looking at deadline trade effects and more from the American League with Jock Thompson also looking at the deadline. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon reports on the key prospects who were traded. And in the Frequent Flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Oakland outfielder Nick Martini. Later in the show, I'll have our weekly Talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about position eligibility changes after the trades and the myth of the second-half player. And finally, in Master Notes, I'll be talking about the end of the pitching world as we know it. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We've passed the first trade deadline, and we got to talk some baseball. Yes, in case you missed the news, the non-waiver trade deadline passed with a flurry of action, more than we've had in many years. We'll talk about it with all our experts, starting in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Jeff Zimmerman from Fangraphs and Rotographs and sometimes from BaseballHQ.com. Jeff, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks for having me here. We're ready to talk some trades. Boy, aren't we ever. There was a, it was a really busy deadline. I, I was pretty impressed by the volume of trades after past years. You know, you wait and you wait and wait and nothing happens. This year, plenty was going on. It seemed almost every team got involved in some way. So there, there's just a ton of moving parts. And for fantasy owners, I think the key is just trying to shake out the noise from what's not and try to find those little values that are sneaking through for this next week for FAB or for waiver wire pickups right now. The difference in mixed leagues is pretty marginal because it has to do with park effects. And, you know, take a Chris Archer, for instance. He's still Chris Archer, and his value is going to be largely in his own performance, irrespective of who's behind him or where they're playing. But there are some modest gains to be had, you'd think, with Pittsburgh being a better team than Tampa. There's going to be more wins. Maybe a better bullpen will preserve a couple of wins that he might otherwise not have had. Stuff like that. But uh, in only leagues, the differences are much more profound. Tommy Pham going to the AL, Machado going to the NL. It seems like this year the AL didn't, like a lot of the moves, there, was, there seemed like there was a decent amount of moves that could have been in the AL, but it was between AL teams. Like New York was picking up a bunch of starters. Um, the relievers kind of moved a little bit um, The um, between Toronto and the Astros. So there was, like I said, it seemed like a lot of the AL moves were between AL teams and the NL were the ones that kind of gained um, kind of some stars or just um, fantasy-relevant players heading their way. 
Yeah, I noticed that too, and it was a little disappointing because I'm in an AL-only league, and I had the fab hammer, and I was hoping to see something really big come across. I had my fingers crossed mostly for uh, one of the Mets' big guns uh, to come over. I thought DeGrom might end up in uh, in New York with the Yankees, but uh, and that would have been great for me, but it didn't happen that way. So uh, let's just talk about fantasy impact in general. You've looked at all the trades uh whether in a mixed format or in an only format, uh, which do you think were the real fantasy impact trades that happened this time around? I'll just start with mixed right now. The big thing was a lot of the closers, like there's just new ones. Texas is looking at them, the Indians, the Brewers, the A's, the Padres now. Some of those teams are had their um, closers moved in and out, so um, I think that's kind of a big one. I also think one thing that we've noticed and we'll have to see how it works out, is all these teams went and bought these really nice bullpens. Just the other day, the Brewers, Peralta started the game, had only allowed one run, then got pulled, and the Brewers just threw out their lockdown bullpen for the next five innings and, you know, won the game. So I kind of wonder if there's some, like, marginal starters that aren't going to be able to go the full game since all these teams now have a bullpen and they're going to use them that it's going to be even tougher to get wins. And it may be instances where we really need to look hard for um, players like Josh Hader, where he's like the the two-inning guy for teams that have these marginal starters and ends up getting the wins because he's thrown longer. I also wondered, though, if your marginal starters might actually see more wins and maybe better decimals because they're getting out of the game earlier. You know, you get a guy who's capable of going five innings, but they have to leave him in through six because they don't have a bullpen, and that's the sixth and maybe part of the seventh is where he loses his lead and and loses that win. Now all of a sudden a guy only needs to go five. Like five used to be kind of the floor. Maybe five becomes a new ceiling and uh, not going through the lineup that third time. Maybe your fifth, sixth starter type guys get extra value because it, their decimals get better. Yeah, but I think it's going to have to be a kind of a team-by-team thing and kind of the depth they have. Like, I wouldn't be worried about the Astros, like all their starters go long. It's, I mean, that's not going to be a problem. But some of these teams with marginal starters and just great bullpens, like I want to kind of see what happens in New York because they're kind of that way with the Yankees that they have a lot of marginal guys that they're going to be throwing out. And with the addition of Britain, that that bullpen is, it can go six innings easy and, um, just kind of roll through games if they've got a little bit of a lead and they need to um, get some wins. Quite a few teams seems to seems to have gone in that direction, Jeff, uh, that they could really roll out three or four relievers on Monday and then two or three different relievers on Tuesday, and they're all really good relievers, so they have a lot of flexibility in that regard. Yeah, I mean, the Yankees are loaded, um, the Brewers are loaded, the Astros, they're going to end up putting one of those starters even into the bullpen, so they're going to have a guy that can go two or three innings it's going to be just kind of a different game, definitely, when we get to the postseason. And it's going to be interesting to see if some of these teams, especially as they, um, especially like in the National League where they're vying for every spot and there's a lot more teams involved, if they actually start operating this way for the next couple months. It will be even more interesting if they do and three or four of them succeed. Maybe a couple of them ride that technique through the stretch into the playoffs, maybe into the World Series. 
will it start to affect the the regular season as well? Will teams start to realize, hey, instead of you know trying to land one of the few available aces in free agency and spend twenty or thirty million dollars with all the risk that that entails, we'll just load up on a ton of relievers and you know start flopping them in and out as needed if they get hurt. We'll just go to AAA and get another one, you know, and get these max effort guys. And yeah, they'll burn out in three years, but that's not our problem. Yeah, it's just definitely going to be one of those. Like I said, trying to guess exactly what's going to happen isn't for sure, but it's definitely something to monitor and um, something for owners just to kind of keep track of as they kind of head toward the end of the season here. If that were to happen, Jeff, how do you think fantasy valuations would be affected uh, beyond, obviously, your Justin Verlanders and Chris Sales, who can get deep into every game, become maybe even more valuable because of their ability to, to pick up counting stats? Uh, but the, uh, do lesser starters start to fall in value and, and uh, multi-inning relievers start to gain to the point where maybe the relievers are passing these middling starters in value? Yeah, I think a lot of them kind of have already like the middle relievers have moved up in many of my leagues. Um, I usually play like 15 team or deeper. The waiver wire is so bad with starters. And it seemed like a few years ago, you could kind of find a guy that would, you know, would work for the week. And now you're um, going after, I just kind of recommend middle relievers. It's like, well, I'll get the guy. He can get me a bunch of strikeouts to help my rates and he won't just kill my team. And I usually try to keep a guy like that on my team, and it's just like, well, I don't have a good starter to go this week. I'm kind of almost just like streaming out bad starters instead of trying to stream in good starters. We talked uh, a moment ago just briefly about the situation in uh, in T- uh, Toronto and Houston. They swapped their problem child uh, closers. Ken Giles comes up north. Uh, Osuna goes south. It looks like Osuna's not going to get the closer job in Houston. He's got Hector Rondon in front of him, and he's been lights out. But the situation in Toronto looks a lot more viable for Ken Giles to come in and maybe get his head on straight and resume picking up saves. How do you see these two bullpens shaping up with the trade of these difficult closers? Um, I think you called it perfectly. I think um, I think Ozuna's just going to be put to the back for right now. I don't think they want him to close. I think they really wouldn't want him in that spotlight. I would kind of use him, if I was them, kind of as a fireman, if there's like in the seventh inning, you know, middle of the lineup, up. you want your best closer in, why, why not use him then? Right. Um, but I think trying to keep him out of the limelight would be good for them, for their PR. For the Blue Jays, Tapura has not been good recently. I think he has the job, but I think if he blows up once and um, Giles has kind of established himself maybe with a couple appearances, I think that role could change pretty quickly. So... Um, I think Giles is a perfectly good kind of guy to take a chance on if you're really hurting for saves. Francisco Mejia was probably the biggest name prospect or the highest rated prospect moving from Cleveland to San Diego in the Brad Hand uh, Adam Simber deal. Seems to be a good deal going in both directions, actually. Uh, you follow prospects. What other fantasy noteworthy prospects did you see changing hands? The one, they're not really prospects because they've been up and down. I don't know their exact status if they played enough. But I was interested in Austin Meadows and Tyler Glass now going to Tampa for Chris Archer. Um, both of them have potential. They really haven't achieved it. They have this upside. And I think both of them, it might be a 
chance of like a new situation. But both of them, like I said, I think could be really good. But like I said, they're not the unknown prospect that everyone has. But I think there are some of those guys that could really um, move forward. And also, I don't remember what trade it was in. But um, a couple pitchers. One was um, actually um, Baltimore picking up Dylan Tate. He was kind of a top-round pick. He's, he's a real hard thrower. But there's this whole um, thing of can he be a starter or can he be a – or if he's going to end up being a reliever because he um, just doesn't have enough pitch pitches. The other um, guy that I was interested in was Hearn. He's another pitcher that falls in the same mold. He's kind of a hard thrower with maybe just a couple pitches. So it's going to be one of these deals where is he a closer or is he a starter. But there really just wasn't a lot of big names – traded and I think one reason was is there really wasn't any besides Machado any big name players on the move like no one really moved a guy with multiple years of eligibility and so forth so I think that that was kind of one thing that kind of kept kept the prospects from being moved as much I have two names that are not familiar to me, might be familiar to you, that I that just I picked up on because of the commentary that surrounds these trades when they happen. Uh, Willie Castro, a shortstop in the Cleveland organization, pretty much blocked by Francisco Lindor, uh, number eight prospect in the organization, moves to Detroit. Do you know anything about Willie Castro? He's actually going to be an interesting um, guy. I don't know a ton about him, but it's, it's one of those deals where every time I looked at him, um, kind of look at those guys that are doing good in AAA, and he's like, well, he's not going anywhere. So I think this was a perfectly good move to kind of see what he has and um, probably just give the kids some hope that he's going to be able to play because he sure wasn't going to have it happen in um, Cleveland. Was there a player who didn't get traded that really surprised you given the uh, context of the trading deadline this year? I was surprised Detroit. There were some um, closers, but I kind of wonder if teams didn't do it like Detroit's um, didn't um, – Move Shane Green. I was kind of surprised Fernando Rodney didn't get traded from Minnesota. There was just some of those. And I was also a little surprised the Mets didn't clean house a little bit more. That there could have been some more players to be moved there. But that's just how the Mets have been. Like they've been trying to be like, you know, like just barely sub 500 team for years and they just can't make a decision on, you know, if they're going to try to make an improvement and move people on or if they're what they're doing. I mean, they still are rostering Jose Reyes, so that should just say it all. Yeah, I looked at uh, Zach Wheeler. I, I kind of gave up on the idea that that uh, Syndergaard or Jacob deGrom might be traded, but I thought Zach Wheeler's name was popping up a lot near the end, and I thought there was a possibility there, but uh, no dice, that's for sure. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt talking with Jeff Zimmerman from Fangraphs and Rotographs, and Jeff, uh, you have a very frequent chat through the Fangraphs Rotograph system, and uh, I was looking at it the other day, and somebody asked, they were going for it this year in a dynasty league, and they had the opportunity to trade away Gary Sanchez of the Yankees to get uh, JT Real Muto of Miami, and whether they should do that. Just one for one, straight up trade. And you said for sure that they should. What's your thinking on that? Um, I just um, don't think Sanchez is going to play a lot this year. And if you're you're going to get one of the, I mean, if Sanchez is probably the number one catcher, he's probably going to be at least as a hitter, or as long as he qualifies. I kind of wonder with his injuries, if there's a chance he's moving closer to 
first base DH type of stuff. As long as he's still catching, he should be number one for a few years. But Real Muto's not that far behind. He's the second one. And if, if there's a chance, I mean, if this is the difference of you, you know, having a roster is getting a, a good catcher for this year to win, I, I think the wins are just the most important thing with fantasy baseball. It's it's, when it's what's important. And then get the win this year and then during the offseason figure out what it takes to win the next year. you got a whole offseason to figure it out. And, and you really didn't, like, sell the future. I mean, you probably sold the number one catcher for the number three or number two. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't right. a huge drop-off. So I'm, I think that the trade's fine, especially for the chance to win this year. I thought the trade was a really good idea for this guy, not only for immediate help. Obviously, he's going to real muto playing is going to be a lot more help than Gary Sanchez sitting on the DL. But even in the dynasty format, I thought the question implied that this guy thought that Gary Sanchez was clearly more valuable than Real Muto was in in the dynasty format. I think Real Muto is only a two, like two years older than Gary Sanchez is, and he's been very reliable. I, I checked, and he's played like almost all the games that you'd expect a full-time catcher to play for the last three years. Hasn't had a nick or a cut, nothing like that. And Sanchez has had injury problems, as you suggested. He may lose his catcher eligibility, at which point he becomes a good power-hitting first baseman, but with a lot of flaws. I don't know, didn't you think that, in a way, Real Muno might in the long run actually be just as good as as Sanchez is in a dynasty format? He may be. The one thing that worries me a little bit is Real Muto's value. A lot of it comes from he gets a few steals at catcher, and I just kind of see that dying off pretty quickly. I mean, very few catchers steal to begin with, and not alone as they get older. Um, yeah, it's. I would be really tough because Sanchez could just be – he could be dominant if he can just find a way to stay behind the plate. Um, if he puts up numbers like he did last year, I mean, this year it's been a real struggle. So, yeah, it's definitely kind of a gamble right now, but it's a gamble worth taking. I mean, you're, it, it's, the drop-off's just not that much if, if you see it that way. I mean, the guy, like he was saying, it was a huge drop-off, but it's really not, and their values have um, definitely Sanchez's is down this year compared to the preseason. You said in the chat that you'd have no problem rostering Kyle Gibson of Minnesota for the rest of this season. I remember Gibson was something of a sleeper pick coming into this year and something of a disappointment early on, as usual, with Kyle Gibson. What do you see there uh, in in Kyle Gibson's big improvement? Um, the big thing is the getting strikeouts. I mean, that's where um, it's up. his caper nine's up over one right now. Um, so, and the results are just, it's just enough to be better. I mean, he went from, actually, yeah, it's almost close to two more strikeouts per nine. Went from like 6.9 to 8.8. So with that increase, his um, ERA and all of his ERA estimators are around 3.5, 3.75. So I think he's just, uh, he's one of those guys that you're not going to win you leagues, but with, with it so hard to find decent starting pitching, and he's going semi-deep into games that he's just a, a usable starter, you know, fifth or sixth starter on a team, and sometimes finding those are tough these days. Another reader asked you to rank uh, Trevor Bauer, um, Blake Snell, and James Paxton for the rest of this year, and you had Bauer way ahead of Paxton with Snell following close behind. Why that order, and why so big of an advantage for Trevor Bauer? It's the health. He's healthy right now. I don't trust guys that are on the DL and when they'll come back. Um, he's throwing just as comparable to them, and but he's throwing right now. So 
um, just with all the headaches that come with the um, injuries and, you know, some guy comes back and then he's back on the DL right away that it just comes down to health. And with just a couple months, you know, if they, you know, if the DL stint goes out two weeks, you've lost a quarter of the season with what's left. So I, I want the guy that's on the mound right now. Could you apply that same sort of thinking to them next year when you're talking about where you're going to slot pitchers of this of this ilk in your draft cheat sheets or on your value page? Uh, do you give Bauer the extra credit for a, a pretty unblemished health record so far compared to these other two guys? Is Bauer way ahead of them in a uh, new draft coming up next year? Oh, I think so. Actually, I think the biggest move, fantasy move, that that happened yesterday that got absolutely no press that will probably have the biggest impact in draft season was Chris Sale going on the DL with the shoulder issue. Like That should straight up be scaring people for next year. I mean, it's a pitcher. It's going to happen. But he's never been on the DL for any kind of pitching injury. He's out of the big studs coming in this year. He was the youngest one, so he you know didn't really have his injury track record. But now he does. So it's kind of an interesting thing that, when I saw that come through, that he was heading on the deal for a shoulder issue, I was just like, well, there's finally a red flag for him because he just never has had one until this year. Yeah, he'll go way down. It's almost like what's happening with Kershaw, right? You know, he floats along for years, uh, seemingly absolutely impervious to injury, and then one injury starts, and then they just start coming one after the other back in his case. But a shoulder injury is nothing to sneeze at. And, of course, when I read about it, a lot of comments I saw online, not necessarily from people who know a lot, but uh, there was an, the obvious thing was Sales got a very unusual delivery. And some people say it's easier on his arm. Some people say it's harder on his arm. Where do you come down on the difficulty of his the, the appearance of his odd uh, arm slot? It's painful. To, it's not painful to watch like in Alex Wood sense, but it's still, it just doesn't look right. But it's been effective for him. I mean, it's been years. I mean, every, all these other guys with perfect mechanics have all fallen apart, and he's been able to throw for a long time with this bad one. As long as he, you're effective and healthy, I don't think there's a reason to quit. But until you're you know, not effective or it starts becoming a health issue, I don't think there's any reason for a pitcher to change if they found a, a thing that works for him. There was a question about Edwin Encarnacion of Cleveland, and you referred to the juiced ball having offset what should have been his decline years for power, and that without a juiced ball, his declines could be swift. What makes you think the ball is or is going to be less juiced than it has been in the last four or five years? Craig Edwards at Fangraphs did the work. We're just not seeing the exit velocities. We're not seeing the same results this year as we had the previous three years when they did change the ball and it started getting implemented. But it's not back to the previous ball before that. It's kind of an in-between state. They kind of wonder if they just made a few changes or if there was something else that's going on. But there's some evidence that there was just a small tweak to the ball and the power is coming down. And like I said, for someone his age, he was heading down before the juice ball and then the juice ball just kind of, kind of kept his age the same. But now that he's... Now, it's kind of going, and he's getting older. I just think it could really accelerate his decline, and I think you kind of have to watch that with some of these guys that may have seemed to defy aging, but maybe it was the ball that kind of helped them defy it. When I saw that comment in your chat, the first thing that jumped into my mind was, what about Nelson Cruz? Could the same thing be said about him, and what does uh, what's your 
long-term outlook, if he has a long-term outlook, but even like next year, the year after for Nelson Cruz, given those same circumstances. Yeah, he's one that's, it's the same way that it's, um, definitely, you know, he's just such a risk anyway with his age and he's had health issues previously and the DH has kind of really kind of helped him, but he still ran into some this year that, um, with Cruz, every time I draft him, and it was kind of, I always felt this way with Ortiz, but he sort of kept that way where you just expected, if you got nothing from him that year, you could understand. Um, Victor Martinez just kind of had that same fall off where it was like, you were, he was you know somewhat productive and then just non-existent. And with some of these older guys, it's you're in that um, that way. I just kind of wonder at some point, I think this year, I mean, in a few places, our pool horse was just going so late. I was like, well, I'm just going to take a chance on him, and I understand I may only get two months out of him. But he's been somewhat effective. He's been a killer for batting average or on-base percentage. But otherwise, he's still, you know, just kind of a reasonable guy that at, at some point you're just going to get nothing from him. We talked earlier about uh, the Real Muto for Sanchez trade and the importance uh, in your mind of always trying to win when you can. Uh, you had a recent column at Rotographs. You called it a rant about keeping playing hard, even if your team's not doing as well as you'd hoped, and uh, if your team is out of the running. Why did you bring this up? What what caused you to, to get all uh, worked up about this? Well, the one thing, I in one league I've been trying, and I've just, been decimated by injuries with my hitting front. So I've just been, you know, turning through and trying to find guys. And um, I had very little money left. And so I put in some bids, and there were some decent players left. And I wanted all my top guys. I'm like, what happened? I mean, there should be guys bidding. And I just noticed that some people still had over 90% fab left on multiple teams. And in this case, these owners paid good money to be in this league. And so it's not, but the problem is it's not like an ongoing run with the same owners every year. So, you know, it's not like, oh, we can kick these guys out, but these guys have kind of quit with money still on the line. And, and in this case, it's like, I'm able to get these players and move up in the rankings. Like I'm sort of within striking distance and can actually, you know, get a little bit of cash if I move up. I may not be able to get the first, but it's one of these deals like, well, I can go ahead and move up. But, yeah, with these owners out, owners are somewhat close in the rankings. These guys that just quit their teams and don't make the changes, you should be able to kind of move up in the rankings as they don't keep their um, rosters active. Yeah, this has come up before at Baseball HQ Radio, and we talk about it at First Pitch Arizona every year in November and at Tout Wars. And one of the arguments... uh, in favor of if you're an also ran staying out of the bidding is that you're affecting the race because you're preventing some of the guys who are you know jockeying for position at the top from making the moves they need to to make now this is more about trades that some guys argue if you're a ninth place team you shouldn't trade anybody to the second place team especially if it allows him to win the league because then you've had an effect on the league but Whenever I hear that, I, I always think, well, if you're not making moves, you're affecting the league too, because you should be f- draining the good players out of the free agent pool before the guys at first, second, and third get a chance to roster them, especially in your case. You mentioned you don't have much fab left because you've been busy all year, and now all of a sudden it's it's like they're affecting the race by giving you players for nothing that you really shouldn't be getting. Right, and it was, it was just one of these instances, and I remember earlier on I would always have to put in 
six, seven, eight bids just to make sure I got my guy because it's like, oh, these are the guys I want, but we're all bidding and, you know, we know they're the top guys, so I may get some, I may not. And I just want to have enough, you know, to fill my, definitely if I'm needing a player, not so much wanting one, like, you know, I need to fill an outfield spot or need to fill a third base spot. But now it's like, I still kind of have the habit of putting that many in. I think this last week I had, I needed to fill two outfield spots. So I was two outfielders and I put in 10 bids and I got number one and two. And I was just like, okay, I guess I didn't need to put in 10, but there was other times when I've had to put in, you know, put in that many and I only got seven, you know, so went down to number seven. So it, it's just one of these deals, but as they quit too, like I said, you can move up in your leagues and it's really tough. And especially in these league types where um, they're kind of competitive and like some teams at the top, you know, it's, they have some money that they're supposed to get, but these ones that are out of it, um, you would kind of just think they would still be competitive, but maybe they just moved on like, you know, well, I'm not going to concentrate on this one and I'm going to concentrate on the ones I get my money with, but they really do affect the leagues and I don't know how it can be corrected. Well, I guess the one thing you can do as an individual is just not play in those kind of leagues, but they're getting increasingly tough to find, especially if you like playing in public leagues because the the guys you're playing against just change from year to year and you never know what kind of deal you're going to get. So one of the things you did in the in the uh, in the column that I thought was really good was you basically said if some guys in your league have stopped playing, you can take advantage of that if you're the kind of guy who wants to keep playing. Some tips and tricks that uh, you can take advantage of the situation. What were some of those ideas? They were really good. Um, one of the things that I've kind of done is, depending on how you're, how things are working out, is just kind of remind people, hey, can you kind of guys be active, you know? Or one of the things is like, oh, if the trade deadline's coming up, you can kind of mention it, you know, hey, the trade day, trade trade deadline's coming up and maybe put out some trades for them. Or um, the other thing you can look at is if, if they have some injuries on these teams is see like, oh, you know, all these guys are hurting um, with, that's ahead of me in um, home runs that, you know, they've kind of have quit. If I just start pushing in home runs, I can move up like five spots and get myself um, closer to the money in the league. So, I think just kind of watching to see what's happening and kind of figuring out which teams have quit. And especially with, like, the fab, it's like, um, in one league, you can just tell, like, oh, all the active guys don't have any fab, so we're just not going to bid as much and just kind of save it back. There's just no reason to kind of be aggressive um, in those spots if and just kind of notice which teams and just kind of mark, like, they're done, they're done, they're done, and you can just know that you're not really competing against them. Something that comes up when you mention that is the ethics of uh, managing other guys' teams. Uh, I played in a league once where we had a couple of owners who were kind of losing interest. They were not in a position to really do anything big. And in those days, we used to have reward you for finishing farther down. You got higher draft picks the next year and so forth. And so they they didn't keep playing. And I one year was in a real battle in my league, and I started emailing these two guys who weren't doing anything. And I said, I can't help but notice you know, that you're, you've got two outfielders on the DL. And uh, I don't know if you noticed, but, you know, Bobby Abreu just got traded into the league and you've got all your fab left. You should put in a bid on Bobby Abreu. And, uh, and they did. And the guy that I was battling with found out about it and said, 
you know, you really shouldn't be telling other guys how to run their teams because it benefits you. What do you think of the ethics of that? Um, I don't know if I've individually gone. It's kind of cut the line going to the individual teams. The one thing I have done is done like league-wide ones where I know something's going to happen. In Yahoo leagues, there's usually we, I played in a league with an innings cap, but you could get all the innings for one day. So once you went over it for that day, you were done. So you would kind of like bump right up to it and then throw all your starters, you know, everyone you could that one day just to kind of get a boost. And I'd been in the league a couple of years and um, kind of had lost it or um, saw a guy wait to the last day and kind of take the lead and win it that way because everyone didn't really know the rules. So I actually ran my bump like a week beforehand got all my starters, got my big bump, got over, and then I reminded the league of this rule. And so everyone was fighting. There was just no one that could get every all the pitchers from one day, and it kind of kept the guy from um, getting a chance to win. And he was a little bit mad about it, but he was the same one that waited to the last minute and used it the year before, so I didn't feel that bad. Okay, okay well, let me amend my question. Suppose instead of emailing these two guys directly, I had posted a message on the message board saying, you know, if anybody out there needs an outfielder, Bobby Abreu just got moved into the American League and would be available if you had lots of fab money. Meaning, of course, these one or two guys were the, would be the point of it, but I, but I could argue that I wasn't just talking to them, I was talking to everybody. Would that be any better from an ethical point of view, do you think? Yeah, I think so. And, um, and, and it's just nice when the league is active. I mean, it keeps everyone in it. It keeps things... Um, just a little bit more square. The league kind of plays the same a little bit. But um, there's just some adjustments. I know in my AL-only league, I'm going to have to make a, a decision on FAM this weekend. And I, I don't know if I've got the hammer. But also, we have some keeper prices. I mean, there's some keeper issues with it, too, however much you bid on. But I'll have to kind of make that decision, um, how much I'm going to go for him. But I'm sure there's some people with a lot of fab that just not even going to make the move. And it would be kind of a little bit disappointing. If you had the hammer, would you rather have Fam or would you rather have uh, um, Jonathan VR? I think I, I, it might come down to position, sort of, but I think I would try to um, go with Fam. I'm a little bit worried on how much Tampa's going to kind of play him. They have, I kind of look at their lineups every week, and it's just like it's, sometimes I just throw up my hands between them, the Cubs, the A's. There's some of them that's just like, oh, my God, what are you guys doing? The Dodgers have been that way. But, um, no, I think it's it's that way. I think it's kind of a sneaky pick in AL only this week would be Logan Forsythe. I think he's going to be a – some team can kind of sneak him in because he should have a full-time playing job um, there with Minnesota. And I think that he's probably – even in mixed leagues, he might be viable now. He's up on my list of um, players to um, target from the trade where he just moves into a full-time role where he really didn't have one before. Well, part of working a roster is fab planning, as you mentioned. You've been making predictions this season about how much fab will be spent each week. I think this is in uh, NFPC format, and which players will attract how big of bids. You were really accurate all year. You were doing a great job, and then you put out a column saying, wow, this just didn't work this week. What do you think happened? I think people were hoarding. I, I want to see what happens here at the trade deadline. It's... Um, I think some teams were like, well, let's see what happens and let me try to have some money because I'm not going to make, you know, I'd rather miss out on this small move now than a big move later. So 
um, I'll kind of see what happens after this next week. I'm still going to, I mean, I'm still putting them out, but I'm not going to adjust my formulas. Um, I've kind of noticed that there's kind of been some ebbs and flows. One thing I want to go back through and look at holiday weekends. I think sometimes those drop off. Like after the All-Star break, Father's Day, I kind of noticed some people weren't active. The 4th of July, so that might be sometimes you might be able to drop down your fab a little bit. But it's kind of like my first year doing it, so I'm. it's kind of just like, I kind of just wanted to see how it worked, and it's kind of interesting seeing how it goes in different leagues. But with the NFBC, they're been kind of aggressive compared to like some other people have written me like, oh, we're not this aggressive, but um, if you work out the numbers, you should only have half your fab left by the second month. I mean, the difference between the time that you'll have them, it's just more important to spend your money early and try to get those guys for the whole season than to wait, especially in, like, mixed leagues. I mean, in only leagues, you kind of have to make that decision. Are you going to move now or are you going to move at the trade deadline? And sometimes if there's a guy early, like Juan Soto going into the NL, I think I'd rather move now and just get that guy for the whole year than just kind of hope something like Tommy Pham shows up, you know, like if you're in an AL only league, like, well, is this what it is? Would you rather have Bowers for four months or Pham for two? On the other hand, if you're in an NL league, would you rather have Manny Machado for two and a half or whoever else was available earlier on for for the full time? So, yeah, that's right. I mean, you can kind of make, I mean, you can make that call in the NL. So that's kind of, I mean, you didn't know Juan Soto was going to be that, but that's kind of, it, it, it's a tough call to make. But in a mixed league, I don't think there is. I mean, there's just not that call. I mean, you need to get your guys early, get those starters, and um, go from there. The other big thing I found out, there's just a lot of money spent on closers. And I don't, I think it almost justifies overpaying during the auction season to not have to be involved in the fab bidding during the regular season. It just sucks up a ton of fab if you're chasing. And I know some guys get hurt. You may not want to be there. But if in the mixed league, I'm almost to the point of getting like one stud and maybe three borderline guys just spending a little bit more on them instead of starters because you can starters just go for so much less during the regular season and you can kind of find them. And you can always find a starter every week. You can't find a closer every week. Well, Jeff, this has been uh, fantastic so far. Can you come back in a few minutes and we'll pick it up and uh, continue on with part two? Sounds good. Jeff Zimmerman writes for Fangraphs and Rotographs, and every so often for BaseballHQ.com, and he'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up, our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League. That's next on Baseball HQ Radio. He's sitting on 714. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Henry Aaron is coming around third. His teammates are at home plate. And listen to this crowd. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch player news reports and a lot of news on which to report. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League and leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend Baseball HQ analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. 
Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. Lots of news today. Lots of news this week, especially coming after the deadline, and we'll talk about the trades in a second. But first, there's some news out of Los Angeles. They've uh, activated third baseman Justin Turner from the 10-day DL. Uh, this is going to have some playing time ramifications for the Dodgers. Uh, what's going to go on with uh, with the Dodgers' infield and batting order? Well, well, indeed. Uh, Manny Machado now moves uh, moves to shortstop which, of course, is what they, they hoped eventually, and Turner is now in at third base. So uh, you've got really a loaded Dodgers lineup uh, at this point. Uh, uh, Max Muncy will lose a little playing time. Max Matt Kemp will lose a little playing time. Uh, Muncy's coming mainly because he won't be playing third base anymore. Uh, but it looks like a real loaded lineup for the Dodgers. Brian Dozier gets a slight gain, and Turner, of course, gets a 15% playing time bump uh, now that he's back and, and off the DL. So uh, the Dodgers sure look loaded in the infield at this point. Yeah, they do. And uh, I've, the first thing that popped into my mind when I saw this news is, boy, there's going to be a lot of pretty good players losing a, not, not a huge uh, total amount of playing time. But uh, you mentioned Max Muncy, for instance, everybody's favorite uh, first guy to grab this year. And uh, there he is on the bench. Uh, speaking of third baseman, coming back from the DL, the Mets third baseman Todd Frazier was activated from the, the DL on Thursday. He had a rib problem. They also put uh, Philip Evans uh, on the 10-day DL because he broke his leg so I presume it's just one out, one in? Yeah, really, that's what's going to happen. Uh, Frazier missed almost a month with a rib injury that led to his second DL stint this year. Uh, his XBA of 244 is right in line with his production over the past couple of years. And so uh, Frazier will just slide right back into to the playing time, a 5% playing time gain based over what we had in terms of, of projections. And uh, Evans is going to lose about 15% playing time while he heals from this, uh, uh, from this injury. And I know that Evans was uh, was ticketed for some playing time at third base anyway, and now he's going to lose all of that. So if you had your eye on Philip Evans or if uh, Philip Evans is on your roster, you're going to have to make some plans. Uh, finally, yet another third baseman, uh, Arizona Diamondbacks uh, Jake Lamb, but this is not good news. He's uh, had shoulder surgery on his non-throwing shoulder, but he's out for the rest of the year. Yeah, Lamb's shoulder already cost him 44 games and, and uh, was dragging down his performance when he did did appear. But he ends 2018 with a 631-222 line and 207 at-bats. So uh, Eduardo Escobar now, uh, really his the deadline deal that they made to get him has really been supersized. Uh, he has uh, got a 15% playing time bump uh, with Lamb gone. Uh, and there'll be a playing time bump for Chris Evans and for Daniel Descalso as well, a slight 5% playing time bump. Uh, for both of those. But Eduardo Escobar is certainly the everyday third baseman with Lamb out. Chris Owings, you mean, uh, uh, at getting some shortstop time because uh, I guess Escobar was ticketed to play a little bit of shortstop. Now that's probably not going to happen. Kettle Marte should get a few extra at-bats too, should he not? He should indeed. Just a few extra extra at-bats for Marte. And then, uh, as we said, Daniel Doscalso, uh, who's been uh, been pretty good when he's been in the lineup, uh, will get some extra playing time as well. And if you were worried about Nick Ahmed losing playing time to Escobar, I guess you can relax a little bit as well. On to the trades. Uh, this is the uh, week when a whole lot of action happened. Uh, before we get started, Nick, do you remember uh, such a busy trade deadline? I really don't. I mean, every year there are all the rumors going on about trades and, and they don't happen. And this year, it seems like most of them sure happened. A whole lot of, of trades right at the deadline. It's been a while since we had this many uh, all at once. And uh, most of it 
in terms of players leaving one league to going to the other, and the National League certainly got the lion's share of that. But uh, we finished off in Arizona with Jake Lamb. Let's start in Arizona. They really shored up their bullpen, Nick. They added Brad Ziegler from Miami. They got Jake Diekman, a left-hander from Texas. They already had Brad Boxberger closing, Archie Bradley setting up. What does the bullpen look like in Arizona after these acquisitions? Well, this really were really reinforcements for the uh, the sixth and seventh and middle innings rather than the back end of the bullpen. Um, it really makes it what was already a deep bullpen much deeper. Boxberger remains the closer. 90% save for Brad Boxberger is what we're projecting. Uh, Archie Bradley remains the primary setup guy. Uh, analysts give uh, Jake Diekman 5% of the saves, uh, probably where there's some lefty-lefty matchups late in games that would make him very useful there. Ziegler gets 5% of the saves. Uh, and remember, at this stage of the season, that means one or two saves for each of them. So uh, these guys are really more middle-inning kind of relief guys and might pick up a save or two between now and the end of the season, but don't expect much in the saves category from either Ziegler or Diekman. And I'll be talking a little later on in Master Notes about what this kind of move, and there are several teams who made these kind of moves to shore up their bullpens and deepen them, what that means for the shape of pitching staffs in the future. Uh, Atlanta got right-handed starter Kevin Gausman from Baltimore, uh, one of the few starters to make the make a trade move. Uh, assuming Gausman goes right into the Atlanta rotation, how does the move affect his numbers and the rest of the rotation? Well, you know, it's, it's really kind of interesting to see what will happen with Gausman going into the rotation. The... Um, you, you, you may look at Gaussman and go, ah, but, you know, Kevin Gaussman is really a very fine pitcher. Uh, he's had trouble pitching in the AL East. He's had trouble in that park in Baltimore. Uh, and the shift to Atlanta should certainly help. Uh, Atlanta, Baltimore increases right-handed batter home runs by 21%. Atlanta decreases right-handed batter home runs by 17%. That could be a, a huge bump for Gaussman and that, that kind of a drop. Left-handed batter home runs remain kind of the same. But getting out of the AL East, not having to face Boston and New York and Toronto will make a huge difference for Gaussman. Uh, if you look at his numbers overall, his where his, his ERA has been, been pushed up has been in the AL East. ERA and the rest of everybody else except the AL East is down under four. Uh, ERA in the AL East is well up for Gaussman. So this is a good move. Uh, a young a young pitcher who could do very well in a new park, uh, certainly have uh, a lot better offense surrounding him than he had in Baltimore, and probably some better defense as well. Atlanta also added some relievers. They got Brad Brock also from Baltimore and Darren O'Day. Uh, what are the bullpen roles now in Atlanta? This is certainly not a settled bullpen with, uh, with uh, Viscano out. Uh, we're currently giving Brock about 10% of the saves, uh, Mentor 50%, uh, Dan Winkler 20%, and we have 20% sort of up in the air, assuming that uh, Vizcano comes back from the DL. O'Day had season-ended surgery earlier, so he has no role at all. Uh, very fluid situation, likely to be a kind of a bullpen by committee uh, from now to the end with the hot hand getting the ball in the ninth and uh, playing matchups, that sort of thing. Uh, Atlanta is certainly in this and wants to stay in this, and will be using the, uh, the matchups as best they can uh, with what is now a very deep bullpen. Atlanta was also a, a little bit busy on the offensive side. They got outfielder Adam Duval. Uh, remember him a couple of years ago with the sudden spate of home runs when he first came up. Uh, he's now in Atlanta. Where does Duval fit into the uh, roster in Atlanta? Well, right, you know, there's a loaded Atlanta lineup at the moment, and so Duval is basically a backup. He'll be in a wrong side platoon uh, with uh, NCRT and will pinch hit a lot. And, of course, having a pinch hitter on the bench like Adam Duval is, uh, is a really good thing. Uh, we give him about 45% of the playing time. 
Uh, so a little less than a halftime player for Duvall probably the rest of the way. Meanwhile, Cincinnati loses Duvall. How does their outfield shape up? Uh, Philip Irvin was likely to play every day, at least until Scott Shebler returns from a rehab assignment. Uh, Irvin has showed moderate speed and power in his first major league exposure 2017, a 58 at bat si- sample. So, you know, there's some there's some positive stuff there with Irvin. Uh, Shebler has yet to play in the field, serving only as DH. The uh, left-handed uh, left-handed batter outfielder Mason Williams and utility player Blandon Dixon likely are to platoon in the other outfield spot until Shebler comes back. Uh, Preston Tucker came over in the trade. He's gone down to AAA. Might see some outfield playing time later in the season once rosters expand. And, of course, Jesse Winker on the DL for the rest of the year, so there's going to be a little bit of extra playing time available in Cincinnati, and it's a good park for uh, home run hitters at least. Uh, could be interesting for Adam Duvall's replacement. Milwaukee got second baseman Jonathan Scope from Baltimore, and Nick, I have to say this one surprised me a little. Milwaukee had a pretty stacked infield already after acquiring Mike Moustakis earlier, and uh, Travis Shaw was having a terrific year. So now what does the Milwaukee infield look like when you add Scope, add Moustakis, and subtract basically nobody? Yeah, really. I mean, they're, if they were, they were crowded before, they're triple crowded now. At this point, our team analyst projection is that, that – uh, Scope will get 80% of the playing time, Shaw 70%, Moustakas 85%. Uh, Scope's time will be split between second base and shortstop, so he'll bite into the playing time of Tyler Saladino, who's now down to 40%, and especially into Hernan Perez, who's 10% at shortstop, only 35% overall. Uh, Shaw might get some time off to deal with a nagging foot injury, uh, and that probably is a good thing, trying to get him completely healthy. He remains the main second baseman but now he loses playing time down to 55% uh, and will also get some time at third base, about 10% at third base. And uh, what about Domingo Santana? I read somewhere that, uh, you know, they they were using Hernan Perez in the outfield a little. Maybe if they want to keep Perez in the lineup, all of a sudden he's going to start digging into Domingo Santana's playing time. Yeah, he is. It could be kind of the end of the playing time for Domingo Santana, at least uh, crowded out until the September call-ups and, uh, Perez is kind of walking on eggshells, too, especially if Milwaukee gets to bulk up on relief pitching uh, for the stretch. Philadelphia picked up catcher Wilson Ramos from Tampa. Does uh, Ramos become the number one catcher in Philadelphia? Well, Ramos is is on the DL, and in fact, he's been on the DL a little bit longer than uh, they expected. So uh, this is kind of a uh, um, uh, maybe an iffy kind of move at this point. Uh, We still have him number two behind uh, Alfaro. Uh, Alfaro is a real uh, whiff artist, 59% contact rate. Ramos has a 79% contact rate. And in fact, Ramos was probably the best catcher and the best fantasy catcher around uh, before the injury. So uh, both the high ground ball rates, around 50% ground ball rates. Ramos does it more for home runs, 14 year to date uh, versus seven for Alfaro and a similar number of at-bats. So uh, once Ramos comes back, they'll probably begin to share some time. But right now, Ramos, as we said, is still in the DL. So I'd be real cautious here uh, to make sure that they, he, he gets back. Uh, they would not have taken him had they not thought he was going to get back because his contract is up at the end of the year. Any difference defensively? Not a whole lot. Uh, both are about average defensively. Alfaro's a little better in pitch calling and framing. And a significant edge in gunning down runners. Um, uh, 22% steal rate on uh, Alfaro, 32% on Ramos. So a little bit of an edge to Alfaro there. Probably the biggest move at the deadline, and it was right at the deadline, Nick. Uh, Pittsburgh got Chris Archer from Tampa. How does that affect the Pittsburgh rotation? Oh, that uh, that really affects the Pittsburgh rotation. Archer goes straight to the top. 
and is now the number one pitcher in, in what was already a, a very strong rotation. Everybody else has pushed down one, and that probably means that Nick Kingham will fall into the sixth uh, spot, spot starter spot, maybe long relief, uh, that kind of that kind of thing. Uh, and in terms of, of what happens with the park, uh, not a whole lot to choose from. Pittsburgh is probably a little a little more of a pitcher's park than Tampa was. A ten percent decrease in right-handed batter home runs for. For uh, in Tampa, 17% in Pittsburgh. So a little bit better of a park to pitch in in Pittsburgh. Uh, but once again, not having to pitch in the NL East, uh, in the AL East, is going to help with with Archer. Just fewer matchups against the Yankees and the uh, and the Red Sox in Toronto. Uh, certainly going to be a good thing for Archer. And of course, a better team. And I know we always tell everybody you can't chase wins. But certainly, if uh, if a pitcher like Chris Archer moves from a mediocre at best sort of Tampa squad to a playoff contender in Pittsburgh, that has to help a little more offense, a little better defense. Uh, it's a pretty good situation for Chris Archer, and he's going to be there for a couple of years, so he has National League keeper league potential as well. Right, yeah, definitely a, a much better situation for Archer, and, and he's the guy I would think to grab if you get make a choice of these guys in the NL. If you need pitching, Archer's a good a good target. And finally, Nick, Pittsburgh also picked up a, a relief pitcher. They got Texas closer, right-hander Keone Kayla. What will his role be with the Pirates? Right now, he'll set up Felipe Vasquez. Vasquez is pitching very well, uh, certainly one of the premier closers at this point in the National League. Uh, but, but, you know... A, Guys get hurt, and so uh, Kayla is a nice insurance policy. We're splitting them 90% save for Vasquez, 10% save for uh, Kayla at this point. All right, Nick, uh, I guess we have another trade deadline coming up in a month. I doubt it'll be as busy as this one, but we'll be ready to go when it happens. And in the meantime, I'll talk to you again next week with the rest of the National League news. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst with BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD. How you doing? Doing fine. Uh, before we start talking about the trades, which is the big uh, focus of this week's edition, uh, we did have one pretty important piece of, uh, of American League injury news, Chris Sale. The ace starter of the Boston Red Sox has gone onto the DL with some shoulder inflammation. That cannot be good news for the Red Sox at this time of year. No, obviously it's not. He's our ace, and uh, and particularly for fantasy owners, not good news there either. Uh, um, it's it's being described as very mild left shoulder inflammation, and the team only expects him to miss one start. But uh, obviously, you got to keep an eye on this. Um, for the Red Sox, it's it's they they now have. Uh, Sale and Eduardo Rodriguez, arguably their two best starting pitchers uh, with Drew Pomerantz and Brian Johnson uh, taking up the slack. Both of those names are likely to lose their current rotation spots when Sale and Rodriguez return. Yes, and in the meantime, it's quite a uh, fall in quality going from Chris Sale to Drew Pomerantz. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's there's really not much comparison. Pomerantz has had a terrible year, hasn't, hasn't been what Boston had hoped for when they brought him over, but... Uh, um, yeah, they're going to have to make do for the time being. Let us move on to the trades then. Uh, before we talk specific players, what was your overall impression? Well, it was it was definitely a buyer's market. Uh, a lot of teams trying to get something for veterans that aren't in their plans. Uh, you saw a lot of that. Uh, a lot of the contenders uh, didn't get uh, huge names across the board, but they all got a lot of useful pieces, it seems, for pretty much nothing. So uh, it was an interesting and very active uh, trade deadline over that last week. 
Certainly seems, doesn't it, that the teams are being more and more cautious about trading prospects. I think uh, um, maybe two or three very highly rated prospects, uh, starting with the uh, catcher Mejia going from Cleveland to San Diego, and maybe uh, Diaz going from the Dodgers in that trade. Other than that, I didn't see a lot of prospects in this. Yeah, I think you're right, and those two were uh, interesting situations in that uh, the, the the Dodgers are really loaded in their outfield, uh, um, and uh, uh, Cleveland has had almost given up, it seems like, on Mejia, catcher, So, and they, and they really needed relief help. So uh, you're right, uh, not a lot of prospects, not a lot of big-name prospects changed hands this time around. Well, let's start. Uh, we can uh, go through this in alphabetical order, I guess. Uh, Baltimore had already traded Zach Britton to the Yankees, then followed up by trading Brad Brock to Atlanta. Darren, Day, Darren O'Day rather, uh, was on the DL. He got traded to Atlanta as well. So you, you're talking about Britton and Brad Brock both leaving. Uh, what happens to the closer role in Baltimore? Right now, it's going to be Michael Givens, or at least that's how it seems. Uh, he, he's been very, very good the past couple of years, but he hasn't been very good this year. Uh, 4.78 ERA, 1.44 whip. Uh, strikeouts are down a little. Walk rates are up a little. Um, I think he can come back. I I always maintain that he's been a little bit overworked by, by Buck Showalter. Uh, whether he's good enough to hold down a closer role um, um, is it'll be interesting. I mean, Baltimore's not contending for anything. They could probably keep him there all year. They're not going to get that many saves, but uh, worth a flyer, in my opinion. He does have 15 holds this year, and uh, when I checked his uh, his rates, I have uh, I have Michael Givens on my fantasy team in, in Tout Wars, and I noticed right away he's got a 65% strand rate, 36% hit rate. Those are well off his career norms, which are about 80% strand and well under 30% for a hit rate. Um, wouldn't you say that uh, I know these are short run things and with just two months to go, it's an even shorter run thing, but um, maybe Michael Givens isn't as bad as he looks. Yeah, that's my take on it. I mean, he's still a, a, a pretty young guy. He's, he's 28 years old. Uh, that's relatively young for a reliever. Um, and uh, you know, his, his, his ratios aren't that, aren't that bad. His velocity is, is down what, maybe a tick, you know, if anything. So, uh, um, there's just not a lot of difference here between his metrics uh, this year and what they were last year, but the bottom line is a lot different. And if uh, Michael Givens can't get the job done, do you have any speculation of who might get the handful of saves Baltimore's likely to generate? You know, right now the next guys look like Tanner Scott and, and Mike Wright, but none of these names are really rosterable unless uh, uh, until something happens, and maybe even then. Uh, not a big fan of this rotation or this bullpen. I've seen another name bandied about, a guy named Paul Fry, so keep an eye open for him as well. Baltimore also picked up Jonathan VR from Milwaukee, uh, trading away Jonathan Scope. Uh, the Milwaukee's clearly uh, gunning up for the playoffs. How does moving to Baltimore affect VR's value? VR, I think, gets a gets a, a new life uh, coming over from Milwaukee. There was clearly no playing time left for him over there after the Brewers' acquisitions. Uh, on the surface, I think it's a good thing. Uh, regular playing time, he's going to slot into Shoup's second base role. Um, we have him, I think, projected for 75% of the playing time there. Um, and he just came back last night. I think he got a hit or two in his first game with Baltimore. Um, biggest problem might be his stolen bases. They could be at, at risk. Uh, Baltimore doesn't run a lot. They're fifth from the from the uh, MLB bottom. Um, on the other hand, the Orioles are going to have trouble scoring runs, so maybe they'll try to use that different dimension. So uh, I, I like Villar in here. 
I was thinking the same thing. Gosh, if they don't steal bases and try to move guys around, they don't have Manny Machado. They don't have uh, Scope that has left. Uh, Chris Davis is having a terrible year. I mean, they might may not score a run at all if somebody doesn't steal a base. Yeah, exactly. That was kind of my take on it, too. Um, uh, I own Villar in, uh, in one of my keeper leagues, and I was about ready to drop or try to trade him, but uh, this deal makes me think I'm going to hold on to him. Meanwhile, Boston shored up their offense a little bit. Uh, they got second baseman Ian Kinsler from your neck of the woods. The Angels swapped Kinsler for some prospects. How does this affect Ian Kinsler and the Boston lineup? Well, Kinsler moves into the second base spot, which has been a bit of a problem for the Red Sox. It's been a revolving door. They thought they were going to get Pedroia back, and they, they didn't. He went back on the DL. I think it's a nice pickup for Boston, and it's, and it's a good deal for Kinsler. He's moving into a good lineup and a much better ballpark, obviously, than Anaheim. He he may get a few less at-bats, given that uh, the Red Sox still have Brock Holt and uh, 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 playing second base. Uh, so... Uh, uh, but but I don't think that's gonna that's gonna make much of a difference. Um, um, I like Kinsler in Boston. Um, any chance we see Dustin Pedroia at all this year? Um, last I heard, and that was yesterday. They don't expect him back. Um, I mean, what has he played a, a whole week this year? Yeah. That that knee must be really giving him problems. So I I certainly wouldn't be hanging on to Dustin Pedroia right now. Cleveland got outfielder Leonis Martin from Detroit. For uh, Cleveland's number eight prospect, uh, a shortstop named Willie Castro, Cleveland already had about 45 outfielders on the roster. So how does it help them to acquire Leonis Martin and what happens to all of these other outfielders? Well, it sounds like Martin's going to step straight into center field. Uh, Rajay Davis and, and Greg Allen look to be out of, of that mix. Um, I, I, I think Allen may have already been demoted again. He's been up and down all year. Davis isn't the fielder that Martin is. Uh, David or Martin's going to get uh, most of the most of the playing time reps in uh, in center. And Michael Brantley in left. That leaves uh, some playing time nibbles for you. Mentioned Rajay Davis. We've got him down for thirty five percent. Brandon Geyer, Tyler Naquin, Malky Cabrera, uh, Lonnie Chisholm's on the DL. I don't know when he's coming back. Uh, what about DH? Is there any chance? Of course, with Edwin Encarnacion, not much of a chance they can use that to to spell out these uh, outfielders either. There's going to have to be something, some moves made, isn't there? Uh, yeah, you would think so. Frankly, I think we may be underweighting Melky Cabrera in uh, in right field. He's the he's the one left-handed hitter in the mix. Uh, Chisholm Hall's a lefty too, but he's on the DL and he's not expected back anytime soon. Melky Cabrera has always been nails against right-handed hitter, and he started to hit over the last couple of weeks since they brought him back a second time. Uh, my guess is that he's going to get ha- at least half the time there in right field. Uh, and he's he's obviously he's not going to hit for power, but uh, he's he's going to give you a 270, 280 batting average. So he's an interesting guy in here for deeper leagues. And I wonder if they'll hold on to Rajay Davis as a pinch runner, pinch hitter type guy for the late game uh, without having him out there as a regular player at all. Uh, Houston got right-handed closer Roberto Osuna from Toronto with all of his baggage, and they gave back right-hander uh, Ken Giles, a former closer, and some prospects plus all of his baggage. Who fits in where in those two teams' bullpens? Yeah, you know, I, I handle the playing time analysis for Houston, and I'm I'm wrestling with that right now. My guess is that Hector Rondon remains the closer for now. Although the way the way Hinch uses his bullpen, uh, it's very possible that they could alternate a little bit as we go down the stretch. I don't think. Uh, uh, Roberto Arsuna has seen his last save. Uh, if one of them goes into a slump, the other one could uh, could rise up. Uh, obviously, it gives the Astros back up on days when Rondon can't go. 
Um, everyone gets pushed down a notch a little bit. It's a very good pen, um, um, but I, I would definitely keep keep both Osuna and Rondon roster regardless of the size of my league. I, I really take to heart what you said about A.J. Hinch, and I, I kind of have a sneaking admiration for his willingness to do what he thinks is best, regardless of who's the so-called closer. I know that Rondon's been dominating that role, but I can see with a, a talented guy like Osuna, assuming he gets uh, his head straight, comes into Houston, and maybe Hinch will say, I think Rondon's a better pitcher, but if the eighth inning is where the meat of their order is, that's when Rondon's going in. I want him against their best, and that if that means Osuna cleans up in the ninth, so be it. I don't think A.J. Hinch cares that much about saves. Yeah, it's interesting, though. I mean, you, you have to look at the other side of that, too. If if Rondon continues to be lights out, do you move him out of that role and, and uh, perhaps uh, make his head take a hit uh, to, to, to a degree? Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how Hinch goes. Uh, my take is you, 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 you don't fix what ain't broken, and this is a great addition, but uh, Hinch has got some things to figure out here. And meanwhile, in Toronto, any chance Ken Giles steps back up into a closer role? Their bullpen's been terrible. Oh yeah, I, I I would think so. I mean, how about you? You're closer to that situation than I am. I, I think they'll give Giles uh, definitely some rope. They're not playing. They're they're not playing for anything right now, and they're 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 gonna need a a back of the bullpen for next year. So it's a good time for an audition. The team said uh, that they were going to allow Ken Giles a shot at closing games. They do have Ryan Tapera, and of course. Don't you think that there might be a bit of uh, managing clubhouse uh, egos here in that uh, everybody in the clubhouse thinks, I know what my role is, and they bring in this guy who's got a bit of a flaky record with punching himself in the face and screaming at his manager and all those stories, and, <laughs> and then all of a sudden he turns up in your in your locker room, and if the team says, right, you're the closer now, everybody else says, wait a minute, you know, I did everything the right way, and this guy comes in and he gets the, the plum job, I think they might have a bit of that kind of uh, personnel management to consider before they decide what they're going to do with Ken Giles. Oh, sure. I would agree with that. And, uh, and, there, and there's nothing wrong right now, given Toronto's situation, to even alternating that role and see who does what. Uh, I, I would hesitate to bring in Giles and announce that he is the closer right now. But I would certainly see him, can see him getting some save opportunities down the stretch. And as you say, they have to figure out what they have for next year. And uh, Tapera has been bad enough that I can see them looking at him and saying, you know what, if we aspire to do anything next year, we're going to have to have something a little more solid than that. Uh, We mentioned Ian Kinsler leaves Los Angeles. Who's on second for the Angels? Well, David Fletcher was getting most of his at-bats at at third base, and his arm was very short for third base. In fact, it was funny. He hadn't played third base um, in his entire professional career until he was promoted to the Angels. He's a second baseman by trade. He's played some shortstop. He moves back to second to replace Kinsler. And his playing third base tells you how bad the Angels' third base situation was. They have Zach Cozart out for the year. And now that uh, Fletcher's over at second, uh, they've got uh, Luis Valbuena. He's a free agent to be. He's hitting like 200 with nine home runs. Uh, Jeffrey Marte is kind of glove-challenged. They brought up Caleb Coward, one-time prospect who's, uh, who's... uh, everyday upside seems to be long past. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what the Angels do there. They have a guy named Taylor Ward in the minors, ex-number one draft pick, used to be a catcher, now playing third base for the first time in his career, and he's hitting very well. But uh, defensively, uh, it's my understanding he still has a long way to go. It'll be interesting to see if the if the Angels try to throw him into the deep end and bring him up uh, at the end of the season. 
Speaking of second baseman, Minnesota traded away second baseman Brian Dozier and got back uh, infielder Logan Forsyth and a couple of prospects. Uh, they'd already dealt versatile infielder Eduardo Escobar off the roster, so uh, who's going to play second base for Minnesota? Yeah, this is an interesting situation because I think Minnesota was kind of hoping that uh, uh, Nick Gordon, who had just been promoted from AA, would, would hit the ground running in AAA, and that hasn't happened. He's hitting about 212 there, so right now they're kind of stuck with Forsyth. He hasn't been very good at all for the Dodgers over the last two years. He's a big disappointment out here. Uh, here, Adrianza could really benefit, and uh, this is a guy who um, who can you know could potentially hit double-digit home runs and steal double-digit uh, bases, uh, uh, middling batting average. So uh, this is a guy that uh, fantasy owners might want to look at just for the playing time. Yeah, I noticed that uh, Adrianza, if you prorate his current stats, he's a double-digit uh, homer stolen base guy. It doesn't look like it because he doesn't play that much, but like you say, he picks up some at-bats. Who the heck knows what he might be able to do with it. Uh, Minnesota also has Tyler Austin, who has some major league time under his belt. What role is he going to play in Minnesota? Austin's an interesting guy. He hit a lot of home runs uh, in his short time with the Yankees, or, or at least enough uh, to where he's hitting. He's slugging 471 after 129 plate appearances. His problem is that he's a DH in first base, and uh, Minnesota has th- those things clogged, those positions clogged by Joe Maurer and, and uh, Logan Morrison. So he's going to have to fight for playing time, and right now our, our projections don't look optimistic for him. He's a guy you want to keep an eye on in case there's an, uh, an injury because if he could get some playing time, he could uh, hit some home runs for you. Of course, Tyler Austin came to Minnesota in a deal that sent Lance Lynn, a right-handed starter, to the Yankees. Uh, what is Lynn's role going to be in New York? Well, as of yesterday, apparently Sonny Gray, uh, after his terrible outing, I think on Wednesday, uh, was uh, he was he was booed off the mound in Yankee Stadium, according to Matt Dodge. And I, I watched part of the outing. He could not uh, stop the bleeding uh, uh, in the second inning, but uh, he's been moved to the to the to the bullpen and Lynn is going to move from the bullpen into that number five spot in Yankee Stadium. Uh, Yankee starting pitching is in a world of hurt right now and uh, in, in fact the, the announcement that came out today was that Chance Adams is going to be brought up for his major league debut on Saturday versus Boston uh, Saturday. That would be Saturday August 4th. Um, so that'll be interesting to see. Adams has always been thought of as a pretty decent prospect and he started out the season on poorly, but uh, um, he's, he's put it together uh, in, in AAA recently, and they're going to bring him up. Um, I think it, it, it looks to me like Lance Lynn and Sonny Gray are going to be, and, and perhaps Chance Adams, are going to be fighting for that, uh, that number five spot. Uh, I think they have to bring up Adams because recent acquisition J.A. Happ suddenly landed on the DL with uh, hand, foot, and mouth disease. Right, uh, yeah. So the Yankees are hurting right now. Yeah, and I can't help but think with all of those bullpen arms that they have that even if Lynn ends up being a fifth starter or whoever ends up being the fifth starter there, I think all three of those guys are going to be on real short leashes. They, I could see easily that a lot of their starts might only go three innings or something like that before they, especially if they're pitching with a lead, that the, uh, the Yankees might just turn the thing over to the six or seven guys they have down there who can get a lot of people out. Uh, Seattle made a, quite a few moves. Uh, they still seem to think they're in it. They got left-hander Zach Duke from Minnesota, a relief pitcher for some prospects, and they added Adam Warren from the Yankees, a right-handed reliever, picked up him for some signing money on the international draft front. How does the Seattle bullpen shape up with uh, the additions of Zach Duke and Adam Warren? Well, these are all middle relief guys and guys that can go multiple 
innings, and and uh, there, there's a reason for that. Uh, Seattle starters are uh, are starting to waver a little bit, particularly Felix Hernandez and uh, and Wade LeBlanc. Um, this is this is pretty much bullpen bullpen depth is what Seattle's doing, and they their their rotation may start to look a lot more like Tampa Bay's rotation uh, as as August gets older and we ease into September, particularly if they're still in this wild card uh, wild card race. Uh, so I I think that's what they're doing. If they could have, they would have liked to have picked up a starting pitcher uh, before the trade deadline, but. Um, they don't have a lot to offer in Seattle. Their minor league, their farm system is uh, thought of by a lot of observers to be the very worst in baseball. So this is what they, they had to settle for. You know, Jock, I could see Seattle, uh, I mentioned the Yankees having a lot of three or four inning starts from their lesser starting pitchers. I can see the same thing happening in Seattle. It could really hurt the value of, of maybe even a Felix Hernandez or something like that. They'll let him go twice through the order and then that's it and start going to their newly uh, newly deep bullpen. So I think the thing to do in New York and in Seattle might be watch to see if there's a particular reliever who seems to be getting the uh, that third or fourth inning coming into the game because that's where the vulture wins happen yeah no that's a good call in fact Felix Hernandez has is already turned into a five inning pitcher I don't think he's I think he's gone more than five innings once in his last seven starts he went five innings last night it was one of his better starts he only gave up two runs he's been bombed lately but it is interesting that both these teams are shaping up uh, along with Oakland as the likelihood for that uh, one game American League wild card which uh, depending on how their pitching is shaping up could be a bullpen game Seattle also added outfielder Cameron Mabin in a trade from Miami. Uh, what is Cameron Mabin going to do in an outfield that already had Ben Gamel and Guillermo Heredia in center? Well, Heredia is a good defender, but his bat uh, isn't going to be that difficult to push aside. Uh, Gamel has spent most of his time in left field. He's not much of a center fielder. They picked up Mabin because he was starting to get very hot in Miami, and they needed a, a defensive center fielder. Um, Heredia is the, the one that's that's really going to be hurt. Um, obviously the big question is what happens when Robinson Cano turns from his uh, PED suspension uh, in mid-August. Um, there's talk about him moving to first base. Ryan Healy's there. Uh, a lot of power, not much batting average. Um, it's going to be interesting in Seattle. I think a lot will depend on injuries. Word has it that D. Gordon got hurt again last night. He rolled an ankle in the ninth inning. Uh, haven't heard a lot about that yet this morning. Um, Seattle is in that wild card hunt. Uh, interesting situation there. But it sounds like Maven's going to play. Uh, I don't think they wanted to move D. Gordon back to the outfield. He was, despite all his speed, was not a defensive whiz. Yeah, well, that, apparently that's what Jerry Depoto thinks, uh, and they want him at uh, uh, at uh, second base. So um, Robinson Cano and uh, and Ryan Healy. It's going to be interesting where they fit all these pieces. Tampa picked up a couple of outfielders. Tommy Pham from St. Louis, I think he's about 30, but they also got a young outfielder, Austin Meadows from Pittsburgh, uh, was considered quite a prospect up until recently. What is Tampa's outfield looking like for the balance of the year? It's looking crowded. Austin Meadows is going to have trouble finding at bats, uh, even in August and September in that outfield, unless something happens. Uh, Right now, it it looks like... uh, Malik Smith, who's had a pretty good year, um, and uh, Kevin Kiermaier, obviously. Uh, um, uh, who else am I missing here? Um, uh, Fam, uh, Carlos Gomez, uh, uh, and and then you've got Meadows. Obviously, Gomez uh, Gomez shouldn't be too hard to push aside for Meadows. I'm not sure how how much he's in their plans, but uh, we have Meadows at 10% playing time. They got to find a way to get him more. I think they will if somebody thinks he's going to only get 10% this year. 
uh, or if you're in a keeper league, I would I would run after Meadows on this deal because I think he's he's going to be good. I think Tommy Pham could be a speed source as well. We mentioned earlier that Tampa runs more than most other teams. I think they're fifth or sixth in the league this year in stolen base attempts. He had 25 bags just a couple of years ago. He already had 10 this year. Is there a chance that Tommy Pham could get you, I don't know, eight to eight, 10 stolen bases the balance of the year? Yeah, I think so. I think Tampa Bay is one of those teams that tends to use the strengths of its players. It doesn't have one set philosophy. So I think your point about Pham is well made. Tampa got another overhyped and underperforming youngster in the Pittsburgh deal. Right-handed reliever Tyler Glasnow uh, comes in uh, for the trade for Chris Archer. Where does he fit into the pitching staff in Tampa? Yeah, on, on Glasnow, I'm going to go with underperforming. Uh, he's still only 24. Um, he's he's a he's a six seven six eight uh, uh, guy. His his he he obviously hasn't measured up to what was once top five overall prospect status. Um, I like this move for Tampa Bay. I think uh, Glasnow needed a change of scenery. Um, his biggest problem has been walks. Uh, gets a lot of swing and miss. Gets a lot of ground balls. Throws in the mid high nineties. Uh, I, I he's a guy I think you got to be patient on. Not sure what he's going to do this year. Um, obviously, he's back starting games in Tampa Bay, which doesn't mean much because he's probably going to pitch two three innings until he gets stretched out. He'd been relieving in Pittsburgh. Um, before he goes, before he goes any further, but uh, at least he's starting games again. And uh, uh, his first game, he did pretty well. He gave up a run, three innings, uh, only walked one hitter, struck out five. That's the kind of potential he has. And uh, in keeper leagues, he's a guy I'd still be targeting. Yeah, he looks like he could be something if he can get the walks under control. I read something about Tyler Glasnow, and the analyst talked about, he called it long levers, talking about his long arms and long legs, and made the point that guys who have that kind of build, and think of Randy Johnson back in the day, it takes some it can take them at least quite a long time to figure out how to get it all synchronized. You know, if, if you're talking about a normal sized guy like you or me, our arms and legs are, you know, a certain length and we can coordinate them with some practice. But this guy's arms and legs are probably eight, nine inches longer than ours. And, and there's more room for error. Yeah, and, and fortunately for Tyler Glass now, his arm is much better than mine too, so he has a lot more upside than I do. Finally, with Tampa, they traded catcher Wilson Ramos for a player to be named. Uh, who's going to get that catcher playing time for the, for the Rays? A guy named Michael Perez, who has started out very hot, but if you look at his history, uh, he's really not worth uh, much of a pickup, uh, um, in, uh, regardless of your, of your league depth. Uh, Jesus Sucre is going to get uh, most of the time. Uh, Perez is taking Ramos' spot. Uh, he's going to back up. Not a great situation there in Tampa Bay. Um, not a great situation for catchers anywhere, but uh, I don't see anything jumping off the page for uh, for us here. And finally, Texas traded closer Keone Kayla, right-hander, to Pittsburgh to augment their bullpen and traded set-up lefty Jake Dykeman to Arizona. That's their second in closer in line, so now there's no closer in line. Who's closing games in Texas? Well, to me, it looks like Jose Leclerc. I, I commented on this a couple of weeks ago before the Kayla trade. Uh, Leclerc, Leclerc's an interesting guy. His first two years in the majors, uh, very limited. Well, actually, 2017, he tossed 46 innings, 7.9 control. He has brought that down to 4.3 con, uh, control. And when, we, when I say control, wa- uh, that's walks per nine innings, 4.3 walks per nine innings. He's striking out almost 13 hitters a game. His swing and miss is huge. This is a guy. If he keeps improving, he could be he could be a dominant closer. It's going to be interesting to see how he manages the uh, the, the ninth inning in Texas. I I think there's a real sleeper here. 
Yeah, it's funny when you say he's walking 4.1 guys, and that's pretty good by comparison to what he used to be doing, but it really isn't that good. I mean, he's going to definitely have to cut back on those walks further, even if it means maybe giving up a strikeout or two per nine, because you just can't walk that many guys and be a successful closer. Now, that's true, but then again, on the other hand, when you've got a 17% uh, uh, swinging strike rate and you're striking out 13 a a game, you have a better chance of minimizing those walks than other pitchers do. I suppose uh, the backup, I think, is going to be Alex Claudio. He was a, he was the full-time closer a year or two ago, kind of a soft tosser, a left-hander. And uh, there's a guy called Chris Martin, Jock. Uh, he just got back from the DL, and I've seen a few sources saying, don't be sleeping on Chris Martin because he could be the dark horse. Yeah, my guess is that him and not Claudio. I know, I know Claudio has the experience, and he got a handful of saves last year, but uh, that was uh, for a guy who strikes out less than six hitters a game, um, I, I, and, and who's a lefty, I, I just don't see Claudio as the closer. I agree with you. I think Chris Martin is the backup, so keep an eye on him in Texas as well. All right, Jock, thanks a million for helping us out. The trades uh, are done, at least until the next wave of trades comes after the waivers, and uh, we'll talk to you about whatever happens next week. Okay, see you, PD. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis and a columnist at the site, and he's our man on the American League beat for Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute and Frequent Flyer, coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. But right now it's time in the show and I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Big Hurt, injuries analyst Matthew Cedarholm puts the stethoscope on to Chris Sale, Ross Stripling, Lourdes Gurriel, and other injured players, in The Speculator, columnist Ryan Bloomfield looks at pitchers who are having in-season pitch mix changes. And in Facts and Flukes, Jeffrey Tomich validates performances by Marcus Stroman, Dellen Betances, Joey Gallo, and two other players, while Stephen Nickran shines the spotlight on Philadelphia right-hander Vincent Velasquez. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We've got buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis plus tools like the player projections, our daily dashboard, the leading indicators. These are all content and tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have the frequent flyer. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at the key prospects who were traded at the deadline is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The 2018 trade deadline saw a flurry of activity with more than a dozen impact Major League players on the move. But as Major League teams have put more and more stock in building from within, the return for those impact big leaguers was fairly thin and few impact prospects were on the move. In fact, just two prospects, Francisco Mejia, who went from Cleveland to the Padres in the Brad Hand deal, and Yasniel Diaz, who was the key piece of the Manny Machado deal, appeared in our midseason Top 50 prospect update. The switch hitting Mejia is the top catching prospect in the minors with a plus bat, above average power, and a 70 grade arm. He's a solid but not spectacular defender who should be an impact bat if he can tone down his overly aggressive approach. Yasni Diaz left Cuba in 2015 and was given a $15.5 million bonus by the Dodgers. He has above average tools across the board, but none that are truly plus. 
on the year, the 21-year-old outfielder is hitting 296 with a 411 on base percentage and a 452 slugging percentage, and his bat should play well in Baltimore. Other prominent prospects on the move include Brett Phillips, who has moved from Milwaukee to KC in the Mike Moustakas deal, Dylan Tate, who moved from the Yankees to the Orioles for Zach Britton, and Luis Ortiz, who moved from Milwaukee to Baltimore in the Jonathan Scope deal. Fantasy owners are not going to find a ton of impact talent here, but the Padres' Francisco Mejia is a must-own in all long-term keeper formats, and Yasniel Diaz makes a nice target for those in AL-only leagues. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week's prospect coverage includes call-ups reports on recent call-ups like Atlanta left-handed starter Colby Allard. And we'll talk about him a little later with Jeff Zimmerman. Baltimore right-hander Cody Carroll, Philadelphia outfielder Roman Quinn, and a whole bunch of others. And Baseball HQ scouting analyst Chris Blessing looks at all the top 25 prospects who were traded during the deadline period, including top 10 lists of prospects who changed leagues. These days, knowing the prospects can mean the difference in leagues, and BaseballHQ.com has the prospect tools you can use to make that difference. Now it's time for Frequent Flyer where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer, Oakland outfielder Nick Martini. And here to tell you more, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Finding value at this stage of the game isn't always easy. Now that the non-waiver MLB trade deadline has passed, real gems and fantasy gems alike are often looking to fill holes with role players. And we think that we've found a pretty good one for you this week. Back in the July 8th edition of Playtime Today on BaseballHQ.com, our own Rod Truesdell commenting on Oakland outfielder Nick Martini, being recalled by the A's, said that although Nick Martini is riding an impressive 65-game on-base streak in the Miners upon his recall with a 415 overall on-base percentage in AAA, the 28-year-old rookie's hit tool is not terribly impressive otherwise, though he's unlikely to be particularly valuable in the majors. That's why Nick Martini, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. But maybe Nick Martini could be particularly valuable specifically to your team. Here's why. Certainly, Nick Martini's total 36 minor league home runs since 2011 does not necessarily suggest a power surge is coming, nor does his total 64 stolen bases since 2011 suggest that Nick Martini has exceptional top-of-the-order speed at age 28. But, as Rod pointed out, Nick Martini does have a knack for getting on base, which probably explains why Nick Martini has been leading off for Oakland on occasion. And, as we all know, the players who get on base most often are the most likely to score most often, boosting the runs scoring category as well as increasing the point values of the batting average and on-base percentage categories where applicable. Maybe it's no surprise, then, that Nick Martini, before his promotion, led the AAA Nashville Sounds in on-base percentage with the previously mentioned 415 OBP, also ranking in the Pacific Coast League's top five for on-base percentage in 2018. More importantly, 
Nick Martini's 415 OBP correlated to scoring 43 runs at AAA Nashville in 2018, including Nashville Sound's top five ranking for runs scored in 2018. See how that works? Higher on base percentages often point to higher batting averages and lead to more runs being scored. In fact, despite his small major league sample size, it looks as though Nick Martini hasn't missed a beat in the big league since his July 7th promotion, batting 311 with a 439 OBP in July, which closely resembles his 308 average and 415 OBP in Nashville in 2018. So, maybe Rod Truesdell is right, and he often is, in saying that Nick Martini is unlikely to be particularly valuable in the majors but he could still be very valuable on your team, both as a role player and as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. When we come back, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Jeff Zimmerman from Fangraphs and Rotographs and Baseball HQ. That's coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Here comes Roger Maris. Standing up, waiting to see if Maris is going to hit number 61. Here's the windup. The pitch to Roger, way outside ball one. And the fans are starting to boo. Low ball two. That one was in the dirt. And the boos get louder. Two balls, no strikes on Roger Maris. Here's the windup. Fastball hit deep to right. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Jeff Zimmerman from Fangraphs and Rotographs and Baseball HQ. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Thanks. At Fangraphs uh, recently, you also posted your list of the top 75 stats-based pitching prospects. I love things that are stats-based rather than scouting, and I know I'm in the minority here that most people say, oh, it's a mix of the two and stuff like that. Uh, I know that there's a scouting element to it, and I appreciate guys who are good at that kind of stuff, but I really like stats-based anything. What's your method for assessing pitching prospects using stats? It's really just kind of a simple system is I take the player's age, compared to the level they're in. So I've found out what the average, you know, triple-A pitcher is, is normally like 23 years old, 24 years old. And then I figure out their production at that level compared to the average one, if it's more or less than that. And for their production, all I'm using is strikeouts and walks. Any kind of ERA, any other adjustment, there's just too much to know on their defense, the parks and everything. So I was just trying to keep it simple. And then I just took previous pitchers, that did good and just kind of compared the stats that they had in the minors and just come up with a grading system that tries to mimic actually the 2080 scouting scale, but it's here's what a, you know, a 60 grade pitcher did in the minors. And these are guys that are comparable to them. So it just kind of picks some guys out. And a lot of times when you go look at them, sometimes they're really good. And you know, there's a lot of stuff going on or other times you'll read and it's, 
some guy that's kind of getting by with deception at this point and, you know, just only go throwing backwards with an 88-mile-an-hour fastball. But it kind of gives you some guys to kind of target and um, see that aren't normally on the, you know, top 100 prospect list. Yeah, it was a terrific uh, column. I really enjoyed it, and I wrote down a bunch of names, so it was uh, it was really well done. Uh, I want to talk more about it, but uh, you reminded me of something about uh, strikeouts and walks. On Twitter not long ago, you said, uh, the more I dig, the more I just prefer strikeout percent minus walk percent, maybe out-of-zone swing minus in-zone contact. It needs to be results-based. What were you looking for, and, and what, what did you find that made you think that? Well, the one thing I found is there seems to be a big push right now towards swinging strike rate. And a lot of them, a lot of, it seems like a lot of analysts are using it. And it's a, a good way to kind of start. And I think it's a good way to analyze a pitcher that's only had a few starts. You know, is he getting, are people actually missing his pitches? But there's a little bit more to the strikeouts than just the swinging strikes where there's like the called strike element and some of the guys can really hit their spots and get people to, I mean, I've seen, like, the curveballs that go for a strike, and, you know, they think it's just a high fastball and it just comes in. I mean, that's almost find that more effective than the big swing and miss on a curveball. And so that element's missing with the swinging strikes, and I think just the ability not to walk um, hitters is not appreciated. Like, you're like, why is this guy doing so good? Like, well, he doesn't walk anyone, but he doesn't strike out anyone. Like, well, he just doesn't walk anyone. I mean, um, Greg Maddox... Really, like, everyone thought he could, like, limit soft contact. He really just never walked anyone with an okay strikeout rate, and that's how he was great. Like, he really didn't have any great batted ball stuff. So I just think that combination, and um, I kind of put, like, out-of-zone swing percentage and how do they make contact with stuff that you throw in the zone. It's kind of a little bit more descriptive because those are kind of the two ways to get hitters out. It just kind of says how the pitcher's doing it which sometimes I find a little bit more um, informative. But no, I just, like I said, I, almost all my analysis now starts with pitchers with strikeout and walk rate. I just kind of make small adjustments to there based off park and um, some other factors like only having two pitches or, you know, bad defense behind them. Yeah, I've done some deep analysis for uh, Baseball HQ. We run this thing called the the Facts and Flukes Spotlight where we get to like 1,500 words to do one guy instead of 1,500 words to do five guys. And it's a it's a really fun exercise. And uh, there was a when the, when the whole fir, uh, swinging strike rate thing and first pitch strike for that matter, which I think is, is also somewhat useful but not as much as people say. But I saw the swinging strike rate and I thought – I'd really rather know if they're getting swinging strikes outside the strike zone than in because inside the strike zone sounds like a mistake, first of all, and and a bit more luck that the hitter didn't hit it rather than that the pitcher did something uh, excellent to prevent the the ball from being hit because it was he put it in a hittable spot and it didn't get hit. Now, I know that there's um, some guys who can just fire it by you on sheer velocity, but uh, major league hitters are pretty good at catching up with that too. So I really like the idea of looking at outside the zone um, swing rate because to me that sounds like a guy who's literally fooling the hitters and uh, and that seems to be a more repeatable type of thing. And like, yeah, you kind of know where they're going. I'm. It's kind of just like digging a little bit more, especially if a couple guys are close. And I kind of like looking at um, being able to see. Kind of one thing I've been finding more and more is those guys that are able to throw three pitches. It's kind of those two pitch guys have just really kind of struggle to move up. 
um, John Gray is that way. Everyone kind of thinks it's Colorado. It's basically he's only got two pitches. So if he's ahead, he's striking him out. But if he's behind, he's got to come back with that fastball. Chris Archer's always been that way. Michael Pineda has always been that way. So that's kind of the, my big thing now is after that, I want to know, do, do they have the multiple pitches to maybe go multiple innings? And do they have something besides their fastball that they can throw for strikes that keeps the batters off guard or once, you know, the batters ahead, they're just sitting fastball and going to crush it. Back to the list, you said in introducing it that the order doesn't matter when you make a list like this, which seems counterintuitive. Everybody loves lists because somebody's at the top and somebody's at the bottom and somebody's seventh and somebody's 17th. Uh, what did you mean when you said the order doesn't matter? Well, I probably should go in a little bit more detail. Like, definitely at the top, but it's kind of um, at the point where a lot of the guys are really the same, and depending on who started last, since it's stat-based, they may move up. 10 to plus or minus 10 spots, just depending if they had a start and someone else didn't. So that's kind of the one, one item that I'm, you know, it's, it's iffy with the stats-based stuff is it just constantly changes. It, I mean, the pitcher really hasn't changed, but the stats behind him have, or if someone's gotten hurt, they're just not accumulating the stats, so theirs may go up and down. So I would just kind of look at, like, the overall level and, like, give some values and I found that way with a lot of teams with um, scouting is if you talk to them, they really don't do a one to 100 rank. I mean, there's no, they may have a guy that's a little bit above, but they definitely just group all the 60 guys together. There's just like, these are the top guys. We consider them 60 grade. That's what they are. These are the 55s. And some don't even go to 55s. I mean, it's just 80s, 70s, 60s, and so forth. And they just make sure they have the right number of them in the majors or like in the minors. Like, okay, we haven't, we want to have this many of them. And, you know, maybe off a little bit, but that's just kind of their goal is just to put them into more of a tier based system instead of straight numerical. And I mean, people really get on like, oh, he's 10 spots different. But it's kind of like with them when you're drafting with fantasy. I mean, when you get into like the 100s, it's like the difference between a couple guys that are you know, maybe 20 rounds apart, their production's effectively the same. I mean, it's it's just because the talent is so leveled off at that point. And considering margins of error, one guy's at pick 100, one guy's at 125, you know, the the uh, the fact that the variability of performance could easily flip-flop them and, and still be perfectly accurate. Right, and it's just like someone can, I mean, there could be a whole difference of just 10 plate appearances. I mean, just, you know, you know one someone projects that differently, just a few bits of playing time could really just change that around if they're really doing it stat based. So I just think it's like the leveling. I think at the top, all the guys I'm making sure are there and that makes sense, but it's kind of like a little bit later on, it levels off. And so one of the other things is if the guys made it to the majors, um, I only count minor league stats, so a lot of times those guys start falling off. And they're like, well, this guy's great. And it's like, well, yeah, but he's just not accumulating minor league stats. We know he's great. He's in the majors. Like, move on <laughs> type of thing, you know. It's like, well, I think a lot of people want to see him ranked, and mine's more of a way of trying to find guys that are underappreciated. And speaking of guys uh, who are on the list and fall off it because they get to the majors, your top guy was Colby Allard of the Braves. Uh, he was their 14th pick in 2015. Got to AAA at age 20. You mentioned that's a real uh, green flag for you, uh, age versus level. Uh, 
also a fairly common measure for lots of people, of course. Uh, well, what was Colby Allard doing that vaulted him to the top of your list? Of course, he got called up and uh, got his first major league win just the other day. He's just been pitching great. He doesn't walk anyone. I mean, that'll be kind of a nice thing. To Hopefully, he'll be able to keep it up, unlike Jalen Beeks kind of has fallen apart on that one. But he's got good strikeout rates for, yeah, 20-year-old in AAA. I mean, some of these guys are you know still in college or whatever, and he's in the majors right now. He's just got some room to grow. I mean, he's got a chance to be a lot better. So based off his age and his production, there was just no one else in the minors that was putting up anything close to what he was. As I mentioned, he pitched just the other night in his Major League debut against Miami, and if you're going to be a pitcher, that's not a bad team to start your Major League career against. Uh, he won the game mostly thanks to the uh, Atlanta scoring 11 runs against Miami, but the final was 11-6. to six. Uh, Allard gave up uh, five runs in five-plus innings, two walks, only one strikeout. When you see a debut like this, it's the smallest of small samples. What's your reaction? Every time I think about this, I was like, what would I be doing as a 20-year-old if I started a major league game? And I was like, I'd probably throw up every inning. Yeah. I think it was just probably happy just to make it through. I mean, maybe some guys aren't, but I mean, it's just pretty incredible what he was able to do here just to go out. And um, I wouldn't be counting on him for production, but he's kind of one of those guys to definitely be interesting in. And I'm just going to watch his first start, but I mean... It's his first major league start as a 20-year-old. I'm going to give him a break and kind of see what he does after this. And certainly, it's a, as you said, it's a kind of a, a tick bo- in his checkbox uh, as far as subsequent years, right? A guy came up at 20, held his own. Uh, it's so young to be in the big leagues that you have to just tip your hat, especially in an organization like Atlanta, which seems to know what they're doing when it comes to developing pitchers and, and grooming them and getting them into the majors at the right time. Uh, Colby Allard should be somebody we're not only looking for not so much this year, but really for subsequent years, isn't it? He... he- did a good job um, last year getting to 150 innings. That's always the one thing I kind of look at with some of these younger guys is kind of see what their workload is. But he threw 150 last year. This year he's um, over 110. So I don't think I'd have any kind of problem penciling him in if he's healthy at 100 and, you know, 60 innings, 175 in the majors next year. I mean, it's tough to really pencil in those guys for over 200 right now because they pull them so early that you kind of just have to put that back. But I um, I kind of consider him about a 180 guy previously, but I may have to temper my expectations with just kind of how teams are using their starters right now, especially younger ones. When you're looking at young uh, prospect pitchers in the minors who are pretty much at the right age for their level, which is that that first big green flag you're looking for, what can a young pitcher do at a particular level to make you sit up and take notice and say, wait a second, this is something that interests me? I guess the big thing for me is if they're just yeah, kind of getting the job done, going out, getting the long innings in, working late into games. You kind of want to see that so they can continue on. It's not just a few or something weird going on with the team. Um, some um, websites actually have the minor league ground ball and um, fly ball rate. So I kind of look to see with that if there's something that they have a little bit of ability with that. And I kind of a lot of times look at, especially this time of year, is major league opportunities. Like, I know teams like the Yankees, like, well, we're going to go out and get major league starters, so all these great ones we have in the minors probably aren't coming up. But teams like the Marlins or other teams that aren't in contention, it's kind of their time to kind of bring in these suspect guys 
and see what they can do in the majors and just give them a chance that once they've, you know, kind of been like, okay, we're out of it, we're not going to go do anything, it's kind of a chance for these guys to come up. You can watch them, actually, with good video. I mean, you can. there's minor league um, TV, but it's horrible. I mean, some of those cams, it's just like up from the media booth, and it's this little cheap camera, and you don't get to be able to see anything. So it's kind of a good chance to actually see these pitchers, kind of see the repertoire and see what they're like. And I remember a few years back, there's this guy named Jacob DeGrom that came up. And I went and watched his first start, and I was like, how's this guy not, you know, a number one prospect? He's got this great hammer. He's got this freaking near 100-mile-an-hour sinker. I mean, what what's going on? Yeah, he's got that the slider going on. I was just like, how's this guy not a prospect? You're just like watching him. And he immediately was, like, you know, two weeks later and everyone wanted him and now he's one of the top guys. But it's just like a lot. some of these guys are going to pop up right now and it's just kind of a time to keep your eyes on these guys and um, see who's um, who can be it, um, you know, who can be productive for you next year. You mentioned uh, the opportunity to see a guy pitch. Uh, do you put any credence in the idea of poise, a guy who looks like he knows what he's doing out there, just has the right, demeanor yeah and a lot of times it's not 100 percent true but usually those guys they know where the ball's going that there's some guys that just get up there that like i've got this pitch and i'm just going to throw it hard down the middle like i'm going to aim for the middle may not go there and that's just kind of how i am it's kind of the difference between the thrower and um you know a pitcher a guy that's you know kind of pitching to his locations but you can definitely tell if they're like frustrated i kind of I like the guys that are competitive, but it's kind of like, does it start affecting their mechanics? You know, are they overthrowing? Are they trying to throw too hard? Are they trying to do too much? I think it's kind of a fine line, and a lot of times you kind of have to figure out if it works for the pitcher or not. Like, sometimes you'll see a pitcher when he starts getting frustrated. Like Rich Hill, he usually starts heading downhill after that. You know, like once he starts getting really frustrated with himself, it's like, well, this could go bad quickly. But other ones, you know, they... I've seen Justin Verlander get mad, and he just goes out and strikes out the next five batters. So um, I think it just kind of pitcher to pitcher, and you kind of have to do a little personal scouting on that yourself. One other pitcher I know you're really enthusiastic about or have been in your writing at Rotographs and, uh, and at Fangraphs is Derek Rodriguez of San Francisco. Pudge Rodriguez's son is a, a pitcher with uh, quite a lot of skill, and in a column you wrote you said uh, you, he sh- needs to be owned in all leagues. Uh, he may not keep it up, but from what I've seen, there's nothing but upside. And then you wrote about him again uh, in another column. Has he kept it up? You, that column came out, I think, right after uh, the All-Star break around July 10th or 11th. He's had a couple of starts since. Uh, what are you looking at when you see Derek Rodriguez? I am seeing three-plus pitches that he's just he, – they're working good right now. He's getting – like I said, swings and misses on them. I mean, you can't go with strikeouts on the individual pitches. He kind of has a bad um, sinker that he keeps throwing that I would stay away from. But just last night, he I think he threw seven innings. It was, it was a long game. He only allowed one run, but the Giants ended up losing it. But, I mean, he still kept him in it. Right now, he's um, got like a sub-3 ERA. I don't think his talent's there. I think it's a little bit more in maybe the three-two-five, three-five ERA. I mean, it's not one of those great ones. But the other thing he's got going on, which a lot of – analysts aren't going to like is he's kind of got the J-Hap batted ball data going on. His fastball is an extreme fly ball pitch. So he just gets a ton of pop-ups like Scherzer does, like Sale does. It's just that way. But everything else is pounding on the ground. So 
So it's just all these easy to get ground balls, um, almost at Keiko level. So his overall rate looks at like 40% ground ball rate, which doesn't look that great, but he's on those two extremes. So he should get some good batted ball data right now. He's running a 271 bat up. He's always running low bat ups here recently in the minors. So his ERA is going to kind of float below his estimators a little bit because of his batted ball data on his pitches. And I just think a lot of people are just going to kind of undervalue him going forward, but He's just got some great tools, and if he can eventually, here recently it has gone down his use of his sinker, but he just hasn't gotten rid of it yet. But it's like the one pitch that almost all of the damage is being done against him. Yeah, you said that uh, about his sinker that it's been terrible, and yet he keeps throwing it in major league uh, environments. Do you think that the team just wants him to keep working on it to get it better, so that it be- can become a useful out pitch for him, a useful ground ball generating pitch for him? Even though right now it may not be that good, is there potential that it gets really good as he gets better command of it? Yeah, I don't, I don't know, and I, I kind of wonder if at times he it's like, oh, a ground ball would be great, and I can throw this, and maybe in the minors it would work. The problem with it is it's, it's just really hittable. So that that's kind of one of his like issues with it. Like everyone just swinging and making contact with it. Every every time I kind of see something about him, I just kind of read, and there's not much that comes out about it. And maybe someone else can um, look into it. But all of his other pitches, like whenever they make contact off it, the batting average is under 200. Just just kind of like on the batted ball results, all the ISOs are around 100. They're really kind of low, and it's almost double that, if not triple that, with a sinker. Like they're hitting 340 against it whenever they put it into play. They've got near 1,000 OPS against it, but everything else is really low. I don't know if like dropping it will just completely, you know, solve his problems. But he's being effective now without it. Everything else is good. Just kind of one of those nice pop-up guys, and um, it's nice to be right once in a while. Yeah, uh, one more question about this, and it's more general than not talking about Rodriguez in particular. And it's the question about extreme ground ball versus extreme fly ball. And I know uh, he's neither because of uh, the situation as you described it. But there's a kind of a debate in the analytical community, uh, even in the uh, fantasy community, about the relative value of extreme ground ballers versus extreme fly ballers. And I I don't even really know what extreme means. I've always set the limit at around 60% or so, but maybe 55 if you get a 55% ground ball rate, that's really good, and that's a guy you should target. But there are guys who say, uh, analysts who say, 55% fly ball rate is also really good because it's good in a different way. Lower batting average, lower uh, ERA, and so uh, lower whip, I should say, versus a lower ERA for ground ballers. Uh, how How are you on extreme fly ballers versus extreme ground ballers? The high fly ballers have great value. It's just like those balls just don't go for... Um hits unless that unless it's a home run like these guys will have sometimes a little bit higher home run values but just looking at the current leaderboard of qualified pitchers the lowest ground ball guys number two is verlander he's pretty good number you know seven is garrett cole number 10 is max scherzer so it's not one of these like death sentences i think a lot of people give high fly ball guys or the low ground ball guys it's just like if you're good and you can be at these extremes where, you know, all your hits are either up in the air or straight down, that's where your weak batted ball distance is, you know, batted ball data is going to be from. It's just going to be easier to get those ground balls or, you know, you can cut, players are going to be station to station or if it's a pop-up, it's just a guaranteed out if it didn't go for a home run. So 
a lot of these guys actually have low home run per fly ball rates. I mean, they give up so many home runs, but the rate's low because all these fly balls are just straight up in the air and are easy outs to get. So I don't have a problem contacting or um, owning those players. It's actually those guys that more of the guys that are toward the middle are the ones that I kind of just stay away from because they're not getting ground balls or fly balls. It's like, well, all you're getting is giving up is line drives, and that's not good. <laughs> the devil's advocate says, yeah, but you mentioned three three pitchers who have relatively high fly ball rates, and they're all really good, Verlander, Cole, and Scherzer. They also all have really high strikeout rates, which is a, a part of their appeal and keeps their batted balls down uh, overall what about a guy like marco estrada uh, he's a uh, kind of the poster child for high fly ball rates and uh, and high infield fly ball rates frankly as well but he hasn't been that effective for the last couple of years despite this high fly ball rate uh, is there is that a cautionary tale for the high fly ball aficionado there's a point <laughs> where it's like when the ball starts leaving the yard too much that's when you need to kind of worry about it and also i think a lot of it like with Estrada and um, Dylan Bundy's another high fly ball guy, is sometimes they're just in the wrong parks. Like, I really think some teams should, like if Kansas City's got a ground ball guy and someone else has got a fly ball guy, like like the Reds, make that trade. and Just, you know, get the guy in the right park. Kansas City, Jason Vargas did great there. I mean, he's a high fly ball guy, but that park was so big that everything just stayed in it. So I think sometimes some teams could, you kind of need to look at the pitcher and what park they're in so that they can take full advantage of what their tools are. Yeah, Rogers Center, not a place for a fly ball pitcher, that's for sure. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with uh, Jeff Zimmerman from Rotographs and Fangraphs. And uh, Jeff, during the season, uh, as you know, I ask uh, our experts to talk about players who are boons and banes for the balance of the year. Uh, any rationale is fine. Uh, let's start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners. Uh, let's start in the American League. Who's a hitter who could be a boon? One guy that kind of has been, I'm just going to say that he has been, but he's kind of been under the radar, is Aaron Hicks. He's just been hitting a ton for the Yankees. He's been getting a huge number of um, runs and RBIs just being in that lineup. He's just a guy that I love going forward, and it just doesn't seem like he's getting any love, and I will take him wherever I can find him. He's really not available, but he's kind of one of these guys that you can trade for if some guy hot comes up. Or if I'm doing one of those pitching for hitting trades, a lot of people don't really undervalue him. That seem like I can, make, I can get a good deal on him. Right, one of those things where you say, okay, we've got, you want my pitcher and I'm willing to give him up. I want John Carlos Stanton. And he says, no, I can't give up Stanton. You say, all right, how about Aaron Hicks? He's, yeah, all right, because uh, that's one of those um, methods where you try to set the bar high and then seem like you're being real uh, gregarious by coming in underneath it. Who's a National League hitter who's a boon for you? Daniel Murphy right now. He um, came back hurt, and he started hurt. I think he was still hurt. I think he was just tired of being on the DL and played too much throughout June. But in July, he's had almost MVP-type numbers. He's hitting around 350. Um, I think last night he had two home runs. He's just on fire. He's healthy. His, those early stats are bringing him down. Um, I, it's probably too late to go buy him because his owners have probably caught on to this last month. But if you had noticed that he had turned it around a couple weeks ago, you might have been able to get him dirt cheap. But um, he's one that's... I said he's on fire, and he's just kind of being his own, own self, but his earlier stats are kind of keeping him down. 
that can be a help too when you're talking about trades, especially with guys who aren't paying full attention because they just look at his year his year long stats and they say, oh, I didn't, uh, yeah, okay, you know, because he's only hitting two sixty five or whatever it is, not knowing uh, the the background as you say. Uh, in the American League, who's a pitcher who's a boon for you? Dallas Keuchel, but he's another one where you may be a tad bit too late, where he was having some really bad luck, and he's just been on fire here recently. Again, just putting the ball on the, keeping the ball on the ground, and just taking advantage of that defense behind him. Like I said, I kind of was like, when you thought about it, he came to mind, and the more I look at it, I think his owners may have kind of noticed that and may not be willing to sell as much. In the National League, who's a boon pitcher for you? For going up, I am big on John Gray. Um, his start last night may have killed that. You sent me this a little bit early, and I was just like, oh, I'll take it. And it's like he just goes out and just dominates. So um, everyone's still me looking at that 5 ERA, but his numbers have been so good. And anyone looking for um, strikeouts, he, he's he been great with it. Um, like I said, you may have to navigate as Colorado starts a little bit. You know, maybe shut him down if he's facing a great lineup at home. But he's one, if you need to take a chance, he could definitely um, carry you the rest of the way here. Didn't he used to have reverse splits? Like, uh, uh, I mean, uh, he was better in Colorado than he was on the road, even though Colorado is such a difficult place to pitch. Didn't he actually have a split in favor of his home starts last year or the year before, something like that? I'll just kind of go with the historic. Usually there's that's not the case with them. I mean, usually it's a little bit higher. So... Unless there's like years of it, I wouldn't take too much stock in it. But yeah, he, he knows how to pitch there. He doesn't quit while there. I mean, that's kind of been some um, people have been kind of being given that um, trait or I don't want to say um, label. And it's maybe it's true or not. But he, like I said, he does, seems to want to go out there and compete. So I don't have a, I wouldn't have a problem with rostering him. And you probably can get him fairly cheap right now. Jeff Zimmerman's Boons, Aaron Hicks of the Yankees, Daniel Murphy of Washington, Dallas Keuchel of Houston, Jonathan Gray of Colorado. Let's move over to the Baines. These are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious for the rest of the season. Let's start in the American League. Who's a Bane hitter? I'm going to take some heat for this. I just don't think Jose Ramirez can keep this up. And if someone needs pitching help, you can probably get whoever you want for him. Maybe he is this this good but it's just crazy and i don't think his value will ever be higher i think it's a good time to sell if you need several pieces on your team i don't think he's going to be bad but i think if a team really kind of needs like you know i need a good pitcher and i could get a good replacement for him it might be a good time to sell him because you can probably get whatever you want in the nationally who's a being hitter for you everyone for the brewers there's someone here with all these new additions I don't know who's going to lose out on the playing time right now. It used to be with the outfield, and now it's with the infield, with Jonathan Scope and Moustakas being added. There's just so many players here that not all of them are going to get playing time. I think it kind of reminds me of the Cubs a couple of years ago when I only rostered like Bryant and Rizzo because it's like, well, I don't know where everyone else is going to play. they got too many players. Kind of right now I'm only playing Kane and um, Yelich and just kind of figuring out where everyone else is going to figure out time so i don't know who it's going to be but right now i'm just kind of staying away from the situation but it's kind of tough if you already got these players you may be watching the uh, playing time here for a bit and it might be time to move one or two of them 
Yeah, for me it's Tyler Saladino, but uh, like you said, it could be anybody. Somebody gets a, you know, tweaks an ankle or, or you know gets hit on the hand by a pitch. There's so many things that could go on here that it's a really fluid situation. And fluid situations at this time of the year, if you're in fantasy baseball and trying to get into the money or win a league, fluid situations are not what you should be looking for. Uh, in the American League, who's a pitcher? Who's a bane? Tyler Skaggs. He kind of blew up last night, and he's kind of just has never seemed to be this good, and he's been good this year, but just the guy I don't trust. I guess that's kind of more just like, I don't trust that he can keep, he, to keep for him to keep it up this whole year, and I don't know if he'll continue to. It's probably one of my least like stat-based ones. It's just like, well, has, is he really this way, and can he... It's kind of also, can you keep the health up, which every time he seems to fall apart, the health has been related to it, so... That's where I stand with him. Yeah, he's uh, approaching 120 innings this year, which would be, uh, you know, if he gets a couple more starts, he'll be double what he's done in the last three or four years in any particular season. Uh, it's, uh, you know, one of those things where you look at it and say, well, he's finally healthy. That's why he's getting lots of innings. And on the other on the other hand, the devil on your shoulder is saying, yeah, but uh, 118, 120 innings, he's getting closer to that injury. Yeah, I, I see exactly where you're coming from. Finally, a National League pitcher who could be a bane? Um, Mike Fultonevich. He's another one where his ERA's been great, but he just walks so many people, and he's at that home run park that it's, again, like not a somewhat of a trust thing, but with him, it's just like just his high walks will, finish, I think, eventually catch up with him. His ERA's going to just, it's hovering right around now, around three. I, I just think if someone's, like, looking for pitching, He's one guy kind of like um, a skag where I'm completely willing to move him. It's like, you want him? Yes. And um, I'll take whatever, you know, not whatever you're having your way, but if if it's a player I need, it's kind of a guy I'm willing to move. Does walk a lot of guys, uh, and Atlanta's kind of flavor of the month right now, so you should be able to get a little extra considering how well the team is playing by playing up that fact and saying, you know, and they've shored up their bullpen. There's a lot of things to like about Mike Fultonevich that maybe the the walks in particular in a home run park, like you said. Uh, so Jeff Zimmerman's Baines, Jose Ramirez, surprise of the year perhaps in Cleveland. Uh, all the Milwaukee infield, Tyler Skaggs and Mike Fultonevich. Uh, geez, Jeff, this has been great. You're off to the Sabre convention in Boston, you told me. Uh, what are some of the highlights or events you're looking forward to there? I'm mainly just catching up with a lot of people. Um, the same people. It's a lot of the industries we rarely get together, and this is kind of unlike first pitch down in Arizona where it's the fantasy one. This is kind of more of... Um, just more of like the research ones and a lot of the guys from the teams, a lot of guys I used to work with Fangrass that I moved to teams, the teams will all be there. Um, it's just a good weekend and there's really, it's really relaxed. Um, it's all for charity. No one's trying to make a dollar. I mean, everyone's just kind of, yeah, just wearing shorts and t-shirts and then just enjoying the weekend. So, um, it's a good time. Well, have a, have a great time there. Uh, it sounds like it'll be fun, especially for a guy who's been so interested in baseball research and does such a great job with it. Jeff, uh, thanks a million. Where can listeners read more from Jeff Zimmerman? For right now, I'm um, writing mainly at Fangraphs. Um, I have some stuff with them here recently at Baseball HQ. It's kind of tapering off since the season ends as we kind of it's sadly kind of move it into almost 2019 prep instead of um, 2018. Um, also writing at Rotowire, but... Um, that's just kind of it for right now. Twitter handle? And for that, it's um, Jeff W. Zimmerman. And um, 
I'm fairly active on it. Not, I won't fill up your um, inbox too bad. I follow you, uh, Jeff, and it's a really interesting uh, Twitter feed. Uh, it's Jeff W. Zimmerman with two M's, E-R, then one M, and one N. There's a lot of ways to spell Zimmerman out there. Yes, that is. And yeah, everyone always has to ask me if it's you know Jordan or Ryan. So There was a pitcher years ago at Jeff Zimmerman, a closer, I think, for Kansas City, was it? Uh, it was Texas. He got um, a three-year, $10 million deal. I never saw any of that money, but it was a little bit shorter than me and also Canadian. So um, that was his... Um, Two big differences. And he could throw um, over 90 miles an hour. I think that's a bigger difference than the whole Canadian thing. We're, we're a lot more alike than uh, than different, that's for sure. Jeff, thanks very much for helping me out. It's a great addition to the show anytime you come on. I do appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to you again. All right. Thanks for having me. Jeff Zimmerman writes for Fangraphs and Rotographs, and he has an article or two at Baseball HQ as well. When we come back, our weekly talk with Todd Zola followed by Master Notes, and it's all next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now it's time for me to tell you about the best weekend of the year other than draft, the 24th annual First Pitch Arizona, November 1st to 4th at the Courtyard Scottsdale Salt River. It's right by the beautiful Salt River Fields at Talking Stick, one of the stadiums in the Arizona Fall League. Three full days packed with seminars, scouting, and socializing at the Arizona Fall League. And you can talk baseball with many of the top fantasy baseball analysts in the business, as well as serious fantasy baseball players like you. You can participate in fun and challenging fantasy workshops. We have drafts, there's contests, all geared towards giving you an unbeatable edge for 2019. It's a little early right now to say which top prospects are going to be playing in the Arizona Fall League, but it's not too early to say the prospects will be there, and you'll be there too, watching them from a front row seat. I've told this story before, but back at first pitch in 2007, we went out to the park and I saw a 20-year-old outfielder who caught everything that was hit in the greater Phoenix area. He hit two triples, stole a couple of bases, and generally looked like he was bound to be a superstar. And you know what? Young Andrew McCutcheon did turn out pretty well. You know another guy who was in the league that year? Reed Brignac. And watching his aloof, disinterested manner on the field made me think to myself, I'm never going to draft this guy. And I didn't, which turned out to be a pretty sound draft strategy. Then in 2011, we were out watching a Scottsdale Scorpions game. And in the first inning, we saw two young guys and they looked like ball players. They were swinging the weighted bats waiting for the inning to start and chatting with each other. Mike Trout was due up. Bryce Harper was on deck. That team also had Joe Panic at second, Brandon Crawford and Gene Segura at short, Derek Norris catching, and a pitching staff that included a lefty named Jake Diekman. And like I said, unlike Reed Brignac, they looked like ball players. Last year, of course, we saw league MVP Ronald Acuna, who looked like the real deal, and Victor Robles, who didn't. He had the bad attitude that has helped keep him out of the big leagues this season. Add it all up, the scouting, the sabermetrics, the strategy, the seminars, the socializing, and a bunch of other fun things that don't start with S, including a live recording of a Baseball HQ Radio podcast. That's right, in addition to all the other great stuff, you get to see me. Previous attendees call it the best weekend of the year. We call it First Pitch Arizona. Go to the Baseball HQ site. Look on the right-hand side just under the HQ radio box for another box with a bright orange First Pitch Arizona logo. Click there, and you'll get all the details. Hope to see you. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for Talk with Todd, and I'm happy to once again say to Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, and ESPN. Todd, welcome back to the show. Hey, great to be back with you, Patrick. 
it's uh, trading deadlines over. Everybody's talking about it. We might as well join the crowd. Uh, what were your overall impressions of this year's action at the deadline? Yeah, it was it was interesting. I mean, the, you know, from a from a pure baseball standpoint, which yeah, we don't talk a lot about on the podcast. We we know we talk in offline and in you know Phoenix and stuff about regular baseball, not fantasy. But I just I think it I think there was whether it's a one year thing or just supply and demand, but the return was just it just wasn't great at least on paper for a lot of the the upper name prospects it seemed to me that teams were you have to go with what the market bears and a lot of the teams seem to be taking uh, you know a higher upside but you know lower ceiling lower floor prospect back they wouldn't you know they weren't getting the greatest the best ones so you have to take the lower end prospects that happen to have a high ceiling you know, on and on the uh, on the on the baseball HQ scoring, it may have a you know a lower number but a higher letter. You know what I you know that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, so um, actually a higher number and a lower letter. I'm getting that backwards. With the letter being the 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 likelihood the the prospect hits, so it'd be a or not. I don't mean hits like hits and pitches, but uh, makes it so. You know, the a, a C D or E is a lower chance, but it may be like an eight E. In other words, you know, something like that. But anyway, um, and I just thought that that was interesting. And the whole buyer-seller dichotomy of how the AL looks to have the super teams trying to improve in the fringes. And the NL has the rebuilding teams a year ahead of schedule, seeing which of those teams blinked and went out and got somebody. It was just an, uh, overall a very interesting few weeks. Uh, you know, that it, it mean, I mean weeks too, not days, because it started a little bit early. I wonder if you found it as noteworthy as I did, Todd, that so much of the American League action was inside the league. I mean, yeah, we saw Machado go across to the National League, and we saw a number of players actually moving to the National League. Mike Moustakis went over, Scope goes over. But when it comes to the American League teams making their adjustments and improving their rosters, for the most part, they were staying inside the American League. And there was this kind of imbalance from the point of view of uh, American League-only players hoping that there'd be big names coming over. It just didn't happen. Did you think that that was surprising or noteworthy? I think the number of teams buying and selling was somewhat predictable based upon the you know the, the makeup of the, the two different leagues right now with who's competing and who's not. But then it's just a, a matter of did the Orioles trade Machado to the Indians or do they trade him to the Dodgers? So is it in is it in division is it in league or out of league? And it, I think it just happens that I think because more AL teams were selling and, and more NL teams were buying that the tilt was in that direction. But uh, I think it was somewhat predictable on what the actual split would be. I don't know. But I, I think it's something to – I think it's, you know, we, we like to talk about fab and how to how to go about spending your fab. I do think it's something that at least needs to be considered at the beginning of each year in AL and NL only, trying to decide what the scenario is going to be at the deadline. And um, – I don't know if, if our if our colleague Steve Gardner did this and said, you know what, I'll bet a bunch of NL players come over, you know, AL players come to the NL to deadline, but he had the hammer in both labor and tout, which whether that was by design or he just, you know, with injuries didn't have to worry about spending fab, I have no idea. But I think it's something, you know, I mean, I don't see the AL changing as far as powerhouse teams next year. So I see no reason to hold fab in the AL next, you know, coming into next year. 
As far as prospects coming over, obviously the big name was Francisco Mejia. He goes into the National League in San Diego. But I thought the rest of the uh, the top guys, uh, I was looking at the Baseball HQ, uh, Chris Blessing's coverage of all the prospects who moved to the top 25 prospects. And he had, after Mejia, he had the next four or five guys all came into the American League. And some of them may have a fairly fast track. Uh, this uh, Usniel Diaz going to Baltimore, uh, which is now completely bereft of talent, it looks like. Uh, Hector Perez, a pitcher, goes to Toronto in the Asuna deal. I think they did pretty well with that deal in general. And uh, Oscar Mercado goes to Cleveland in that uh, deal they made with St. Louis. It was all prospects. I think that whole thing was pretty interesting. Yeah, uh, I'm not going to lie. I'm not the guy. You know, you know, I'm not the guy to talk to about the prospects. But I think I think Diaz is, is kind of the perfect example that Baltimore couldn't get you know a, a top ranked prospect. So they're taking a guy like Diaz who has a low floor but high ceiling. That was the best they could get. And, you know, we can argue could have they gotten more a year ago, but, you know, that's that's an argument for another day, another person. But um, I do think that's interesting. Now, Mejia, um, that, that is, you know, that that is a top prospect, and and it, it's going to be interesting to see how flushes out a catcher uh, versus moving to another position. It just it clears, the, it clears a, a pathway a lot quicker. I think Mejia still, you know, from my untutored eye, is still on a track to be a catcher, and I think that's where he belongs. But um, yeah, it's interesting, you know, interesting that Cleveland went that route, and it's because it, it's not like Jan Gomes is a huge, you know, roadblock for a guy like Mejia, but he does have the experience, and he can, you know, maybe it has as much to do with handling a veteran staff than asking Mejia to do that during the stretch than it is Jan Gomes himself. Well, plus Cleveland may have just had to bite the bullet, right? Uh, they have a lot of yeah. trouble in their bullpen, and they've definitely shored that up. I think Absolutely. Brad Hand got a save just the other night already, and uh, it looks like with uh, Andrew Miller coming back that their bullpen may go from being a weakness to being a strength, and then you throw in some good starters. I think Cleveland positioned themselves very well for a long run in the playoffs. It's going to be a very interesting playoff season. Rob Gordon, by the way, in the minor league minute a little later on in the show, will be talking about the top prospects who changed uh, teams during the trading deadline season. You had a very interesting tweet in the midst of the flurry that mentioned something I hadn't seen or thought about. Multiple position eligibility. You tweeted, after the flurry of moves, a few significant players could get the 20 games they need to add another spot for next season. Of course, uh, that's tremendously valuable and getting more so, I think, in this day and age. But which players are you seeing who might gain that added value because of the trade action? Some of it will be this year. Some of these players will move in. It may help in the last month. We'll see. But um, the, the, the list I have, and it, it, I'm sure I'm missing somebody, but the, the guys that I came up with when I was the reason I made the tweet, uh, the first couple are maybe AL only types, but that's kind of important in AL only, I think, and in, in NL only. But David Fletcher is moving back to his natural position of second base with the Angels after they cleared out Ian Kinsler. He's been playing a lot of third, uh, putting it back in second. He, he now should be second and third base eligible coming into next season. And assuming that he is their, their uh, second baseman of the future, you know, he, he may not be a, an all-star caliber player, but as we both know, at, at bats, you know, huge. And if he's a regular, that means something. And the ability to, to bump him between second and third is bigger. Another guy... In the AL, that is potentially picking up another position. Again, it's not going to wow. The name isn't going to wow anybody, but Hunter Dozier is probably going to have first and third base eligibility with the Royals. 
and he's he came up as an outfielder, so he he may even pick up out there at some point. But he's been playing a lot of first, and now more third with Mustakis gone. So Hunter Dozier is a guy, and who knows what the Royals are going to do with their roster. Dozier could see significant playing time this year and next, and could be important. And then you know, moving over to some some bigger names in the in the NL, uh, we don't know yet, but there's some people, at least the Twitter managers. You know, the, 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 the armchair Twitter managers are putting Jonathan Scope at shortstop by the end of the season. So it'll be interesting to see if he gets the 10, 15, or 20 games, depending on the format necessary for, uh, to get, to get the, uh, eligibility. And, you know, adding second base shortstop is interesting and make sure you have the strongest middle infield you can in, in, in your, in your rosters. And Travis Shaw on the same team is, Playing a little bit of second already. We'll see if he continues now with Scope in town. But if if Scope goes to shortstop, we could see Shaw at second, and adding second base to his already third base and likely first base eligibility will help Travis Shaw. And the other one is it looks like it looks like Manny Machado will get what he needs to become third base shortstop again. Some people say, well, he's already shortstop, but that's the important one. Well, having third base and shortstop again, it it just it doesn't increase Machado's value necessarily, but what it does is it lets you have the strongest infield active every week, being able to flip in between the positions. So it's uh, it's it's Justin Turner, he's due back, but there's a pretty decent chance that Machado picks up third base and shortstop uh, by the end of the year. Changing tack here uh, in the Z Files column at Rotowire, you recently wrote about the myth of the second half player. <laughs> I think I know the answer to this one, but what's the myth of the second half player? Does a second half player exist? Is it a tactical approach to trade for a player that is perceived or has even actually had a series of better second halves than first halves? Conversely, is it better to dump or trade or 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 you know whatever you know whatever league format whatever the, you know, the size of the league whatever you're able to do with a player that's had a track record of better first halves is it better to get rid of that player so you know m- c- coming in I, I i i guess i knew you know we're, we're kind of giggling I, I i know the answer is and it's just the same answer with batter versus pitcher or hot and cold or or any any of the things of this nature there are players that are truly better second-half players. But the problem is you can't look at a player's numbers and discern that from those that are just better second-half players strictly due to probability, strictly due to happenstance. So what I did was, I mean, a lot of these studies are, are really mathy and statistically oriented, and I think some people just get lost in that. So I tried to come up, and it has to be mathy. I mean, whatever study you use has to be mathy. But I tried to come up with something that may may spark a, okay, maybe he's right, uh, reaction without being quite as mathy and quite as intricate statistically. And that I what I simply did was I, uh, you know, I, I did my, my favorite coin flip analogy in that if, uh, you know, if 32 people flip a coin five times, one guy's going to flip heads five times. Uh, you know, was that guy lucky? I don't know. I mean, if if he's if if there's one person flipping a coin and he flips it five times, heads or tails, yeah, I guess he was lucky. But if 32 are flipping it, one is expected to do that. That's what the law of probability dictates. One is expected. So when you've got a, a huge player pool of baseball players, 
my theory is that there's just going to be some players that are just plain expected to have a better second half or better first half just because of the size of the player pool. And, you know, one out of 32, you know, if for five years in a row is going to have a better second half. So in my mind, if, if more, if there were more players that, if more players actually had a better second half than's dictated by probability, I can say, yeah, look, there, there are definitely second half players. I, I don't know that I can pick them out, but if I know that he's definitely a second half player, Maybe I'm more willing to to buy into it in the notion that this is the guy because you know I know they exist and he has shown a better second half. Um, fortunately, unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know which it might be. Um, you know, as a scientist, you never want to pre pre assume the the result. But at least by the sample I, I I looked at, I couldn't even make that claim that oh yeah, well there's supposed to be two, but there were four or five or six. I couldn't even say that. The the numbers kind of matched up to probability. So it didn't even show that second half players exist. It showed that those that have had better second halves should have just, you know, just strictly due to probability. So uh, I kind of, you know, I, I, I just mentioned as a scientist, you never want to know the answer. I guess I kind of did know the answer coming in. But um, it still, I, I hopefully if if it, if it flipped, if it flipped even one person's mind, if it, it or re, you know made one person reconsider the notion of a second half player, then I guess it was a worthwhile piece. But um, you know, again, I I do think they exist. I think there's pitchers that control hitters, and I think there's hitters that have better success against certain pitchers. Dang if I know it from the numbers though, just because I I can't discern those from just dumb luck. I think that's the question, and another way of looking at the study might be uh, identify those hitters who have you know three or four consecutive years of better second half performance, and say what percentage of those guys go on to have a fourth year or a fifth year, like the next year, uh, also being a better second half, and and see if it's that way. Because the caveat here, or the devil's advocate position, is. Uh, probability applies to things that are totally random, right? You're talking about flipping coins, but player performance might not be totally random. I mean, you did identify in the comments afterwards, you teased uh, in the actual column and then answered the question a little later, that there there is a guy who has had five straight years of better second half performance and a guy, Jay Bruce, I think it was, who has better first half performance. And when I see something like that, you know, it's like the uh, argument that Gene McCaffrey always makes about Marco Estrada and guys like that. Uh, If you have a guy who gets 10% infield flies year after year after year, and everybody's telling you it's just happenstance, it doesn't seem like happenstance after four or five years in a row. Is there a way to test it that way and, and allow for the fact that, hey, players aren't coins? Yeah, no, definitely. And the other the other thing too being it, the longer you make the sample, especially depending on what stat, if it's a non-park corrected stat or, or, or whatever, something like that, then you're introducing noise to, to, to it that way. As I kind of mentioned, the, the study as done wasn't perfect as it is. I used, I think I used weighted on base average, which is a flawed stat to begin with. Uh, I, I also used K percent and, and I did isolated power, I used a bunch of things. But absolutely, it, it, you know, and I think I, I did, what I looked at was players that had good years, two, two good years and two better second halves in a row and the chances that they have a better second half the third year. And it was a little bit over 50%. So 
I think that you know, it, it wasn't the, it wasn't the probability study with the flipping of the coin, but it just I, I did exactly that. I looked at players that had a better second half two years in a row, and what was the op, what how many had a better second half the third year? And again, it was a little over fifty percent. And for having a better first half, again, a little over fifty percent had a uh, had a better first half, and you know, implying that you should get rid of uh, Jay Bruce at the deadline or halfway through. And uh, I won't go with clutch hitters because I know I listen to the Toronto Blue Jays broadcasts and uh, Buck Martinez and Pat Tabler have told me that in no uncertain terms there is such a thing as a clutch hitter, so I won't ask. Uh, Todd, thanks very much for helping us out this week. We'll talk to you again in uh, in, in seven days' time. Absolutely. Uh, have a good week. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire and appears regularly at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I want to talk about the end of the pitching world as we know it. Now you might not have heard, but Major League Baseball recently passed its first in-season trading deadline. By the time the bell rang at 4 o'clock in the afternoon on Tuesday, more than 40 trades had been completed and more than 100 players and prospects were on new teams. Most of the analysis of who did what will center, as it probably should, on the immediate effects. Various takes on winners and losers, expert opinions, team grades, rankings of the prospects dealt, and even predictions about players who weren't traded who could still be traded after the deadline. Because of this clear shortage of commentary about the trading deadline, master notes will step into the breach. But what I find interesting about this year's trading action is that the deadline trading foretells a potential major shift in pitcher usage. I did a quick check of the players traded, and 19 of them were relief pitchers, at least six of whom were established closers, going to teams where they wouldn't be established closers. The number of closers could be a little higher if you give Brad Brock credit for being the closer in Baltimore after they traded Zach Britton, and Jake Diekman credit for being the closer after Texas dealt Kaoni Kayla. The number would go higher still if you count Roberto Osuna and Ken Giles as closers, although Giles was established in the minor leagues, and Osuna was established as a guy whose baseball card has him facing front and to the left. And I don't know how to count Darren O'Day, who would have been next in line to close in Baltimore had he not already been declared out for the season after surgery. Oddly on his leg, not his arm. The point is that 19 relievers is a lot of players. About half the major league players who got dealt this trading season were bullpenners, and almost without exception, they went to teams who are in the playoff hunt. Arizona got left-hander Jake Diekman and right-hander Brad Ziegler, as well as right-handed swingman Matt Andres. Atlanta got left-hander Johnny Venters and right-hander Brad Brock. Cleveland got left-hander Brad Hand and right-hander Adam Simber. Houston got right-hander Roberto Osuna and right-hander Ryan Presley. The Dodgers got right-hander John Axford, Milwaukee right-hander Joaquin Soria, the Yankees got left-hander Zach Britton, Oakland got right-hander Juris Familia, Pittsburgh got right-hander Keone Kayla, and Seattle got three, Sam Tui-Vailala, right-hander Zach Duke, and right-hander Adam Warren. Three teams added both a lefty and a righty, and a fourth, the Yankees, added their left-hander Britton to a bullpen already loaded with right-handed arms like Dellen Batanzas, David Robertson, and Chad Green, in addition, of course, to their lefty closer, Aroldis Chapman. The contenders have been mobilizing all of these bullpen reinforcements because deep and powerful bullpens are now seen as a safe path through the playoffs to a championship. 
Experts argue about the evolution of this bullpen-centric model. Quite a few put the start of it in 2014, when the Royals came within a whisker of a World Series by relying on their bullpen arms. Kansas City starters averaged barely over five innings per start in those playoffs, got four wins, and posted a 391 ERA 130 whip, with a paltry dom rate of 5.4 strikeouts per nine. The Kansas City relievers got six wins, posted a 254-118 aggregate decimals, with a dom of 10.3 strikeouts per nine. The Royals model had the last three innings locked down by Greg Holland, Wade Davis, and Calvin Herrera, whose aggregate line was 101 ERA, 084 whip, and 11.6 strikeouts per nine. In recent years, managers and teams have shown themselves increasingly willing to experiment with pitching staff optimization that veers away from the traditional model of the starter going six or more, the relievers an inning apiece, and the closer always at the end in save situations. A few years ago, you might remember Colorado tried a tandem starter approach, looking at third time through falloff and trying to prevent otherwise useful starters from facing batters for the third time through. It didn't work in Colorado because the starters weren't good enough even the first two times through. This year, of course, Tampa has made headlines with their openers, or bullpen days, when they start a reliever with the full intention of putting a new guy in every couple of innings. Toronto has also tried that approach late in the year. And looking at the trades, it seems likely that for the stretch run in playoffs, starters, especially starters at the ends of rotations, are going to be on very short leashes. Teams rely on their deep bullpens to carry the load. We'll probably see several teams go with pitching staffs of three starters and nine or ten relievers, including fourth and fifth starters who will now be openers or swingmen or longmen. Any game that gets to the fifth inning with the lead, or maybe even the fourth, will be delegated to a parade of lights-out relievers. It doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to see this model continuing to evolve until it becomes the norm, used throughout the regular season as well as the playoffs. It makes baseball and financial sense. The average Major League game requires pitchers to face about 38 hitters. The average 2018 starter faces 23 batters per game and gets 16 to 17 outs, uh, 5 and a third or 5 and 2 thirds innings. That leaves the relievers to get those 10 or 11 outs. But here's the things. They do get their outs and they allow a lot fewer base runners. The average 2018 full-time starter has allowed about .41 base runners for every out. The average reliever about 0.33 base runners per out. If you substitute the reliever rate into the starter rate for their 16 to 17 outs, the team would allow about 1.33 fewer base runners per game using short stint pitchers. That's 215 fewer base runners per season. And the advantage is even greater if those short stint pitchers replace only starters with 0.4 base runners per out or more. 39 starters, mostly Sale, Verlander, Nola, those kind of stars, are under that .4 base runners per out level. So instead of a 13-pitcher staff with five or six starters, some of them quite awful, plus seven or eight relievers, a future staff might have an ace-level starter, maybe two, and 11 or 12 other pitchers. They might not even be relievers. You might argue that only about 80 relievers are under .4 base runners per out in 2018, which is far short of the 300 or so that would be needed. But I say, ha, you're forgetting that many of the subpar starters might be effective relievers if they had shorter stints. There will be relievers in the minors who could be effective but can't get to big league rosters because the pitching staffs are clogged with those awful starters. And most importantly... 
The existing solid relievers could easily be stretched out from their current workload of three outs twice a week to maybe eight to ten outs two or three times a week, or even more. It's even likely that teams would schedule all their pitchers for all their games. It can be done. It would take some work for teams to optimize throwing schedules, warm-up routines, and the other aspects of preparation and training. There wouldn't be much worry about pitcher buy-in considering how many pitchers who are currently barred from the big leagues because they're one-pitch guys would see a path to big league paychecks opening up before them. It will happen. Money talks. The teams with lower revenues, and greedy owners in general, would see opportunities to cut their pitching costs hugely while improving outcomes and reducing the risk inherent in paying ace starters. Max Scherzer makes $30 million a year to get 20 outs per game. That $30 million could pay an entire staff of eight or nine out guys, especially if the owners agreed to expand their rosters to 27 players to add a few extra pitchers. The union couldn't object to all those extra jobs, right? I know sim players who are already using their pitching staffs along these lines, and they're finding that it works. Of course, I understand sims are not reality, but the Rays and the Jays have been working with this idea with mixed results. Other teams are working to figure out better ways to manage reliever workloads to get their pitchers into games rather than wasting pitches by warming up for games they don't get into. Add it all up and it looks like a decent bet that we might not recognize pitching patterns and staff usage in a few years. The traditionalists won't like it, but me, I can't wait. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Masternotes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Masternotes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we also have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 3rd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 29 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday full edition, Jeff Zimmerman from Fangraphs and Rotographs and Baseball HQ. Jeff is a premier baseball and fantasy analyst. He's a terrific guest on the show. Always like to talk with Jeff Zimmerman. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute was presented by Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. And our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Thanks as well to Todd Zola, our guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, Masternotes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and we have a Twitter feed, at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, all one word, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, wherever you get your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and rating. It really does help us find new listeners and helps new listeners find us. And that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in one week's time with another Friday full edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long.
Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.